It is June 4th. It's Friday. And you're tuned into Real Talk. Thanks for being here. The show is presented by the team at Bitcoin Well, the presenting sponsor since our very first show. And from the whatever it is, 100 odd shows, maybe closing in on like 120 or something like that, Sam ish, approximately. We're actually quite over winter. We're almost closing in on 130. 130? Oh, yeah. Woo! Bitcoin's been up. It's been down. Ethereum's been up. Dogecoin's been all over the map. People are trying to make sense of it through it all. The team at Bitcoin Well has been taking our questions, both on and off the air, and yours as well. If you have questions about crypto, you're trying to make sense of it, you can, of course, find Bitcoin Well right at the top of all of our sponsors at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Super smooth this morning out of the gates. Super smooth transferring coffee into my Real Talk mug. You know, you find these mugs wherever you get your Real Talk merch. Of course, that's at our website. That's the only place you can get Real Talk merch. And I'm and I'm pouring my coffee. This is where we get burned, but I'm trying to find the positives because it's Friday and there's a silver lining. I'm pouring coffee from from one travel mug into my real talk studio mug and what happens but a massive spill a massive spill all over emails that i'm set to read today but i'm finding the silver lining here sarah Wells, and i've realized that the silver lining is that because this show has a certain analog element to it ironically right we come to you digitally this is a modern new media entity live streaming on the internet sponsored by crypto companies and solar panel companies and online learning institutions this is the future now the analog nature of the way that we communicate or the way that we log uh audience emails for example has prevented what would have otherwise been a massive coffee spill on an ipad which would have been disastrous disastrous so had we not been printing these emails out i was going to say like they did in the olden days but but of course we've only been printing emails for about 20 years and i hope that doesn't qualify as the olden days we could open a fax line if you really want you know what the odd time if you talk to people in certain industries like i'm trying to think of who maybe like insurance certainly in 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 the medical profession lawyers still use lawyers people are still using fax machines but i don't think they're the ones that like remember the old school fax they would the, the paper would come off and it would be like that shiny paper and it would roll off it would you'd get you'd have to like read your faxes like scrolls yep yeah i also to, loved i also loved the printer paper that had the little dots yeah the dot yeah. matrix and paper then you, and you had to like pull it off you had to make sure and then sometimes if you didn't do the the perforation just right you'd rip the paper and you have to start all over or if you if you printed a poster like one of those happy birthday posters oh yeah and then you and if you ripped the yeah. you messed the whole poster are you talking around. about the software what was it called i think it was called print shop mm. right like way back so, yeah. but this this is we're going back to the to the days of like five and a quarter inch floppy disk type stuff right this is <laughs> i have if, no idea what you're talking about that that's that's before my time. Oh, don't even try it. <laughs> you, you, you don't even try it. You mean the physical manifestation manifestation that we all know now as the save button? Because we, we yeah, still see exactly. floppy disks in the form of what you click to save things. Yeah. But that always drove me crazy because there's the there was the big disk that was actually floppy. Mm. And then there was the hard, smaller disk. Yeah, the three in uh Three and a half, three and a half, yeah. Which I was like, no, that's not a floppy disk. Yeah, 
but they were good they were like the original uh i wish we had them here with us but if, if we did have them here with us it would be somewhat strange people would be like what on earth in the studio with no storage solutions and no shelving what are you doing with old floppy disks but but there is the uh there is actually it's reminding me of something that i have here in my bag which is what i'm treating this like show and tell right now um, but I do have have you have you ever seen my my one uh, my pad of paper my notebook that I really enjoy oh, using yeah, yeah, yeah. I know Sam you've seen, yeah, this. I've seen this as a matter of fact I'm, I'm trying to stop using it because I'm starting to run out but as you can see uh, for those that are enjoying Whoa. the show watching on YouTube as you can see the front what do you call it, the front cover the heart you know the cover of the uh, of the notepad the notebook is an old disc like how cool is this do you think this is going to boost our youtube viewership up like the thousands of, of of those that listen on the podcast are all going to migrate over to youtube because they just can't control their excitement trying to see this this notebook that i carry around what an exciting development out of the gates on today's show nothing else to talk about so we'll be getting into old computer tech and things that we used to have i, I do remember the smaller uh discs reminded me like what are, are they three and a half or something like that so i know someone's going to correct us in the live chat someone's going to Someone to help us out in the live chat, whatever that's called. But they were like the original fidget spinners, because remember, they had the little bit of the little bit of metal on the bottom that if you slid it to the side, it would expose the yeah. you could see the, the floppy disk inside. Right. I mean, I, I, I hate to speak so technically. <laughs> I, I hope I'm not. <laughs> they had the thingy with the thing. But uh, you know what I'm talking about? All right. Just to clear it up. I, I, I have looked it up. Floppy disks came in three sizes, eight, five and a quarter and three and a half. So we were right. We we're right. Pay attention in school, kids. There you go. Great show in store today. It is Pride Month, and uh, through the month of June, of course, we'll be uh, we'll be speaking to many different people um, in many different circumstances, coming from different backgrounds with different perspectives. And we're really looking forward to that. Sarah's been hard at work on that, and and we'll kick off our coverage officially on Pride Month with our young and queer panel that's coming up in about I'm going to say half an hour's time or so very much looking forward to speaking with Jay Simpson Ophelia Ravencroft and Shane Scott they're going to join us that's going to be a good one of course we have trash talk coming up later I don't know if this is the universe or not but I didn't spill any coffee on the trash talk emails all the coffee I I know isn't that it's like they're I'm not I'm not going to say the universe was protecting them (laughs) Um, but, I will. The universe know, was protecting. Universe them. was protecting. Trash talk them. emails are sacred. Trash talk emails. There's just something about them. They just sit there. They sit through the week in a pile labeled trash talk, and you can tell how the week's going for people. Like, is is the pile like a half an inch tall? Like, okay, it's one of those weeks, is it? So, uh, trash talk's coming up, and then in just a moment, we're going to talk to Todd Hirsch. Um, Todd, the chief economist for ATB Financial, he's got a, a really interesting, uh, do we call it an essay? I think it's fair to call it an essay. It's a publication that he's put out through the University of Calgary School of Public Policy, the state of the Alberta economy and the path forward. This is a story I know that'll be of interest to people across Canada, because when you talk about Alberta's economy, a lot of times you're talking, let's be honest, about certain sectors, in particular, the resource sector and and what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And what's good for Alberta is typically good for Canada. At least that's certainly the argument that people in Alberta have been making for a long time, uh, trying to win the support of other jurisdictions when it comes to things like pipelines or energy policy, as if I need to tell you any of this. Todd's going to get into this uh, with us in just a moment, and I'm looking forward to it. What's really cool about this is uh, this is a a recommended segment from an audience member. This was Darcy who reached out to us and said, you know, I'd love to hear on the show. They said, Todd Hirsch has this great new essay. I would love to see Todd on the show. We thought, uh, 
Bing, bang, boom. There it is. Todd Hirsch will be joining us in just a couple of minutes. Plus, we're getting, uh, you know, we'll get to some of your emails on, on, on some of the other, uh, you know, issues that are that are, of course, forefront in our minds this week. Um, obviously, I think that it's fair to say that uh, that millions of people have spent the entire week or more than a week now in in deep thought, in contemplation. People are trying to understand what reconciliation looks like. Big picture. Uh, this following the discovery of these 215 bodies, these children essentially dumped in an unmarked grave outside a residential school in Kamloops. What does reconciliation look like for each of us individually? How have our perspectives been been impacted? A lot of us are asking tough questions of ourselves. You know, how did it take so long for something like this to get on our radar personally, collectively, considering the fact that indigenous people have been talking about this, testifying in some circumstances, most especially with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission for the past number of years. And we've got some really powerful emails from you on that. I'm going to get to Alex's email a little bit later on in the show, a Catholic's thought on residential schools. It's a powerful message. AJ sent us a a really remarkable letter yesterday and, and we're going to get into that you can keep those emails coming by the way to talk at ryan todd hirsch in just a moment wanted to remind you that our studio is powered by westworld computers for more than 40 years the team at westworld has been proudly rolling out the apple lineup the mac lineup and of course uh, the customers that keep on returning are doing it because they're getting great customer service it's a different feel with a family-owned business like Westworld, right? They're not afraid of me saying the big competitor, right? The, the big box Apple store. This is the family-owned business that goes up against them. They ship anywhere from westworld.ca, and they have a team of technicians that have seen it all. They can repair whatever it is for you that needs repairing. Your iPhone's not working. The iPad's got coffee spilled all over it because of a careless colleague and coworker that's spilled coffee all over the studio desk. Whatever it is, they can fix it at Westworld Computers. Also, a big shout out to the team at Park Power, powering our hashtag Real Talk RJ. Sam, can you call up that Instagram post? If you're watching us this morning on YouTube, check this out. If you're listening to the podcast, now's a great time to go check out Park Power's Instagram. I love this. This is such a beautiful post. They're they're talking about, I mean, it gets a little bit esoteric. Park Power, it's not your usual power provider. I actually enjoy following their social media. If you were like, hey, man. There's a company that provides internet, electricity, and natural gas. You want to follow them on Instagram? I would have been like, I'm good, bro. Turns out Park Power is like, I learn something every single day. We're proud to partner with them. And if you use the promo code 2021-RealTalk at parkpower.ca, they'll knock 70 bucks off your first bill. Todd Hirsch is the vice president and chief economist for ATB Financial. He's just uh, released uh, a really interesting, a fascinating report uh, for the University of Calgary's the School of Public Policy, the state of the Alberta economy and the path forward, making his real talk debut this morning. Todd Hirsch, welcome, friend. It's good to see your face again. Good morning, Ryan. So good to be on your show. It's I've been waiting for a long time to be asked to be on a real talk. So <laughs> I don't know finally the, happening. So I don't know what the hell. Here. I don't know what took me so long, Todd, uh, because I think it's it, it's safe to say that people I mean, across the country, but certainly people in Western Canada, uh, you have earned the right 
to be one of those that people look to for, for balanced, informed insight when it comes to not just where we're at and not just how the economy has been performing, but also for insights looking forward. That's what people care about most. What does all this mean? So before we dig into some of the specifics of this report, Todd, how does a guy like you with a lot of experience, a chief economist, a guy that's seen you know businesses and markets and industries and economies rise and sink, how do you approach an assignment like this at such a unique time we're still in the you know we'd like to say we're coming out of this pandemic but we're still in it there's a lot of factors at play absolutely well when the school of policy a public policy approached me i was really honored and and keen to do it for one thing it brought me a little bit back to my academic roots uh because it is a different kind of style of writing than i'm uh than what i normally do but i was also thrilled to do it because you know the state of alberta's economy and the path forward i think the path forward is the conversation that so many albertans are keen to have right now there's different views about the path forward but i was honored to be able to give some of my thoughts about what do we need to be doing as a province in order to move our economy forward and not just be looking back in nostalgia. You have a a sort of a preamble where you note Alberta has a long history of facing serious challenges to its economy. Uh, including shocks to you know resource price instability, market access constraints, federal energy policies. However, you write the recent and current challenges seem more threatening. It seems that this time is truly different. What makes it so different? Well, I went back and looked. So I'm I'm born and raised. I've lived my entire life in Alberta since graduating from high school. So basically, as an adult, 2020 was the seventh recession. This province, I seen that I've seen as an economist Uh, and it was a doozy there's no question 2020 and the COVID pandemic is a recession unlike any other that we've any of us have seen and what has changed I think is um, maybe a mentality around you know it might have been the bucket of cold water on this province and very unpleasant bucket of cold water I would note but that finally shocks us into the realization that we cannot keep going back to how we used to be after the recession of 2015 and 2016, which was also a major, uh, a major recession, a major shock, a, a oil price collapse driven shock, there was still this sense in 17, 18, 19, we can rebuild, we can, you know, we need more pipelines, we can get things going, we can get back to how we used to be. Then COVID hit. And I think that was the final sort of slap in the face or whatever metaphor you want to use to the province to say we cannot no longer just dream about getting back to where we used to be. We have to forge new paths in the province. You, you talk to like anybody that's surfed and when you get banged around on a wave, one of the, one of the things that, 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 you know, you can find yourself in real trouble is when a set starts rolling and you haven't been able to get yourself, you know, back up and you haven't been able to kind of recover. And then you just keep getting hammered and it just makes it worse and worse. And that, that kind of fits the description that you've been providing here. So people want to believe that there are glimmers of hope on the horizon. You don't have to be a politician uh to prioritize messaging that finds silver linings we're almost out of this we're almost out of the woods there's light at the end of the tunnel can you present that perspective based on the numbers you've crunched well there is optimism and there is you know light at the end of the tunnel but for alberta this is a process we are in transition so unlike other recessions we would have seen, and many of, of the listeners would be familiar with the recessions of the 80s and 90s, we did go through recessions in the 90s and the 2000s. It was always this boom followed by bust, followed by boom. 
in 2020, moving forward, you know, even though oil prices are back to pre-COVID levels, we are not seeing the boom. And that, to me, signals that something fundamental has changed in the energy industry, especially around employment. So now in, in June 2021, we are seeing oil prices back up, you know, pretty good. They're butting up against $70 US a barrel uh, this morning and about $55 the Western Canadian price. The energy sector is actually stable and in pretty good shape. But what we're not seeing is growth, growth in employment. We're seeing a little bit of capital spending. But my analysis in this paper, I looked at employment trends over the last 10 years and it you know, I, I conclude that fundamentally the energy sector has changed. It is going to remain a backbone of this province for a long time, but not a growth engine. And that is the biggest shift. That's the biggest transition we've seen. So what? Yeah. So, Todd, I mean, you, you, like you'll talk to people, you know, just sort of colloquially and, and people will say well, oil and gas isn't going anywhere. Right. I mean, well, you know, I mean, at some point, sure, it's phasing out. But for the next, you know, 20 to 60 years or whatever you want to say, you know, people are still going to need oil. And that may very well be true. And that could be good news for the bottom line of a, of a province that's, uh, you know, collecting royalties or, or, or a nation or whatever the case may be. But what are the employment implications? Right. A continued demand on oil and gas or resources it doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be a big boom for jobs. Right. That's right, and that is the challenge that we are facing. It's not going to come from traditional oil and gas. We're gonna keep producing oil and gas for a long, long time. But as I said, you know, that's not the growth engine in employment. Fortunately, uh, we do see some very strong indications that uh, we are, are gaining employment in other sectors of the economy. And I'll be very brief outlining four, technology and digital, agriculture and agri-foods, particularly agri-foods, not so much traditional agriculture in terms of employment, but food and beverage processing, renewable energy and clean energy technology. So we're seeing job opportunities open up in there, but the challenge is we have to recognize those jobs, even you know, to see 10% growth in those sectors, it's still dwarfed by the magnitude of the traditional hydrocarbon industry. So we're gonna need a lot of growth for quite a few years out of those industries before our labor market rebalances. And a lot of those jobs in those sectors I mentioned, uh, they're good jobs, but they don't always replace those high paying jobs in the energy sector, which you know are among the very highest paying in the country. So those are high paying jobs that, that aren't coming back. And, and I mean, that's, that's gonna be a, I mean, that's tough for a lot of different folks, right? Todd, you've got kind of the young professionals that you would say, well, you're nimble or, you know, you can you can broaden your skill set or you can, you know, it, it develop new skills or whatever the case may be, find a path to transition, you know, and, and then there are people that have that have been working really hard in a certain industry. You think of someone, though, in their, you know, sort of late 40s to early 60s, like that kind of a window where, you know, if you're 55 years old and you get laid off or you're not getting the hours you need or whatever the case may be, that's a really intimidating position uh, for somebody at that stage of their employment to be in. Right. Not yet ready to retire, but but not really up for maybe going back to vocational college. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And it's it, it is a real challenge. And we've seen this in, in the past. I remember growing up as a teenager in the 1980s in Edmonton uh, and seeing some of my uh, relatives who were, you know, in their 40s and 50s and working oil and gas. And then those jobs disappeared. It was the same sort of trauma. How do you retrain or how do you ask a 55 year old 
who all he or she is known is, you know, sort of one job to go back and retrain. This is no easy thing to do. And I don't I don't say it, you know, glibly that people just need to find a, a new vocation at 55. That's and that's my age. Uh, that's pretty tough to do. So uh, by no means do I say, you know, in any light uh, lighthearted way while well, they just need to retrain. This is very difficult. And that's why I think there needs there's going to be um, a need for some support uh, from different levels of government, from community around us to support people who are maybe chronically unemployed and are having to figure out what's next for them. Because that's a big challenge. We're talking to Todd Hirsch. If you're, if you're just joining us, if you're if you're streaming this live on Mixler, uh, you know, and, and, and you want to read along, you want to learn more about this. This is a, a report that was put out by the policy school, the public policy school of public policy at the University of Calgary, the state of the Alberta economy and the path forward. I'm, I'm reading through it, Todd. And uh, and earlier this morning, I'm, I'm sort of going through my notes before we chat. And I, this one sentence, I mean, there's certain sentences that just kind of jump off the page because they're big. They're simple, but they're big. You know, the structural change in Alberta's oil and gas industry appears to be permanent, period. Right. And I, and I just as a as a civilian, as a person, not as a chief economist, but I, I try to sort of understand or make sense of the stories I see. I mean, I'll just cherry pick a couple off the top of my head. But, you know, French energy giant Total writes off assets in Alberta's oil sands or, or you see big multinationals divesting themselves of, of assets in Alberta's oil sands. Now, of course, the flip side of that, the positive is that in some cases they're finding buyers. So that should be reason for optimism, I think, for some people. Um, but, you know, you hear from you know people like BlackRock CEO that will say, hey, you know, the world is sustainable investing. This is where it's going. Investors are looking to go more green. This is, you know, you got to go where the, you know, as Gretzky said, right, where the play is going, not where it is, this type of thing. And then we bring on like a former chief investment officer from formerly of BlackRock on the show. And he says this whole sustainable investing thing is I mean, he didn't use the word sham, but he was like, it's a little bit overrated. It's a trend. It's a fad. And the pendulum is swinging back. So I don't know how to make sense of it. I guess it's kind of more your job. How do you get to a point where you can say, I think the structural change in this industry appears to be permanent? Well, it's really interesting he would say that. And, you know, I I, I, I didn't see the interview and I, I don't want to doubt the man because it sounds like he has a lot of experience in that world, more experience than I, than I have. And I don't get into that end of it, the investing side of it, what investors want to see in terms of that ESG piece of it, the environmental social governance. But I look at it from an economic perspective, even if investors, you know, even if this is a bit of a sham, and I don't think it is, but even if the whole ESG trend is going to go away, I still think we are stuck in a, a, a political and a geopolitical climate. And by that, I don't mean in Canada, I mean globally, where there's a war on carbon, and that isn't going to go away. We've just seen 192 countries around the world sign on to the Paris Accord. They're taking this very seriously. Even if we don't think it's fair here in Alberta, that's the way it's moving. That is where the, the train has left the station. We either need to be on that train or we're going to be left behind. The good news is, I think by being on the train, we can still create a vibrant, prosperous economy in this province with a lot of employment. We just have to be staying. We just have to be on that train, making sure we're developing our renewable and our clean energy technologies. At the same time, we are making sure that our traditional hydrocarbon production, oil and gas, is 
moving toward net zero. I think those are the two key things for this province. And I tend to be more optimistic about it than maybe a lot of other people. Uh, it was Tarek Fancy by the name, uh, by the way. That's that was the name of the gentleman that was uh, formerly at, at BlackRock. And, and he, he was on the show before people can check the archives. Really interesting article. And and you know what? Uh, or an interview, I should say, Todd, I would love it was it was uh, it was on May 4th that he joined us. I would love even if 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 off air, if you took a look at that interview and followed up, I would be very curious to hear your thoughts on it because it was a he, he's a very reasonable and intelligent guy. I'm probably mischaracterizing his message a little bit. He didn't use the word sham, but he, he basically I mean, he, he explained why he left BlackRock. He's a young professional, left a pretty plum gig um, and, uh, and 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 kind of got into it. It was it was a different perspective that we don't always hear. Right. And I think it was an interesting one, yeah. especially for our Western Canadian audience, where really a lot of the stuff, almost exclusively what you hear is the, is the opposite that you, you might you might as well shut down the coal plants. You might as well shut everything down right now because the world has moved on. Well, it is interesting, and I'll, I'll try to go back and, and look it up from, from May 4th. But, you know, I think the important thing in this, and when you look at the IEA report that came out three weeks ago, you know, there was a bit of alarm here in this province because that, that report is, you know, calling for no new pipeline projects, no new energy or oil field development at all. And I think that sounds a little bit alarming to Alberta, but the, the reality is in Alberta, we haven't really been developing new oil fields. We've been developing oil fields that we know are there and that's gonna keep going. And moving toward net zero, in other words, using clean energy technologies like carbon capture, utilization and storage. You know, Alberta in some ways, we're a world leader in doing this. I think everyone understands, including the IEA, that for decades into the future, the world is going to be consuming oil. Less and less of it, perhaps, and people will differ on their idea of when peak oil is going to, to come. But everyone agrees peak oil is going to come. You know, They don't say that about any other commodity. No one talks about peak wheat or peak nickel, but everyone does recognize peak oil is going to come. And I think here in Alberta, we need to face that. We need to understand this. It's not a doomsday scenario. We just have to figure out how do we adjust to that peak oil and keep producing oil, moving towards net zero carbon and being the solution that the world needs. We've got some great comments here on our on our live chat. You know, people are we were talking about, you know, Nadine, for example, says they need to teach entrepreneurship in school, right? In schools early on. Kim says, I'd be curious to know what industries Todd thinks that that current high schoolers should be going into. You talk about I mean, you've talked about some of the jobs where you're seeing some growth, um, healthcare, education, public administration. Uh, you note that they're yeah. largely related to government spending. And I'm, I'm curious to know if you think that is, if that's a red flag or not. Um, and second of all, you know, jobs, you write that sectors traditionally have defined Alberta, energy, tourism, farming are becoming less dominant. So for Cam and everybody else that cares about their kids or for the high schoolers that are going to be listening to this podcast, what would be an intuitive direction to take? You know, that's a great question. And I get asked that a lot by parents or by, you know, high school and university students. They all want to know, well, what should I, what program should I take? And my advice to them is, you know, I always say, worry about it a little, but don't worry about it too much. The most important thing is that you work hard, you be an optimistic person, you be easy to get along with, and you make sure that your skills, whatever skills you're learning, that you understand how to be flexible and adaptable uh, in, in applying those skills. Don't look at an occupation or a vocation and say, that's what I'm going to do. 
I mean, you can, but you also have to keep in mind if that opportunity doesn't exist in the future, how am I going to be able to take my skills and abilities and pivot to something else? Because my generation, you know, coming out of the 20th century in the 80s and 90s, it was very, you know, what job do you want? And you train for that job. And that model worked for a long time. It's not working in the 21st century. Rather than being specifically focused on a vocation or, you know, this is the job I want, you have to say, what are my core abilities? How can I develop and hone those abilities? And then how do I be flexible and adaptable and have a very a zigzag career? over the next 30 or 40 or 50 years in a lot of different occupations, jobs that don't even exist yet. That's the most important advice I would give to young people. I can be guilty uh, oftentimes of oversimplifying things, Todd. So this question may prompt you to roll your eyes, but it's a valid one. It's a sincere one. I mean, if it, when you take a look at healthcare education and public administration jobs as rising, um, or as a matter of fact, let me get a little bit more specific and a little more biting. If you talk to to, to vocal critics of Rachel Notley's NDP, their term in government, and they take a look at the job creation numbers, they'll say, oh, yeah, right. I've heard it a million times. You know what I'm going to say, Todd? Oh, they, you know, they created jobs based on bloated government spending, you know, 70,000 new jobs on the government teat like that doesn't count as job creation. It's just the taxpayers funding it all. At what point do public service or or publicly funded uh, industries start to concern you with regards to longer term viability or sustainability of that growth? Well, it's a really interesting question and an interesting topic. You know, this whole idea that uh, some people have that just because it's a job in the public sector, somehow it's artificial or fake or, you know, it, it doesn't really count as a job. I don't know how many people during COVID would say that healthcare professionals don't count as a job. And if you talk about bloat, there was no better example of bloat than Alberta's energy industry circa 2014. That was the problem. There was so much money coming in, far too many people hired in the industry. Uh, they found out in 15 and 16, they could get rid of 25% of them without basically even a dent in the production. Uh, so there was a lot of bloat. There's a lot of bloat in any industry. Government, sure there's bloat, but I don't think it's fair to say just because it's a government or a, a tax dollar funded job that it is unproductive or unnecessary. Uh, I, I have a high regard for teachers, healthcare professionals. Uh, I've never worked in the public sector, but I know many people who do. And I just sort of reject the idea that just because it's a public sector job, it doesn't count. I think those jobs count productivity to our economy, uh, how essential the public sector is to our economy. Well, and here's where um, I again, here's, here's where I feel, Todd, that I run the risk of oversimplifying the issue in asking you the question. But the, but the oversimplification is and I'm sure that you could poke holes all the way through this argument. But you'll talk to people typically that, that are entrepreneurs or that, you know, private sector. And they'll say, you know, it, it's easy to hire all these people, you know, and everyone talks about the taxpayers and the tax dollars. And it's all supercharged language, of course. But you're hiring all these people. But we need people paying taxes to pay those salaries. Number one, neglecting to note, I think that the public sector workers are also paying income tax. I digress. But but that's the oversimplified argument, right? You need a healthy private sector to fund a healthy public sector. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it is kind of a virtuous circle. A healthy public sector with well-educated people coming out of schools, with people who are maybe through the healthcare system, and they are healthy, both mentally and physically. That is the productive workforce in the private sector. So we need both of them, you know, and I don't I don't I don't buy the argument that yeah, we need a, a healthy private sector hundred percent because by and large they do pay the bills, but they benefit from uh, that public sector in in ways they I think often don't maybe recognize. I've, I've had this theme of emails in, in at, at my former gig and at this one too, and it's been a theme through the course of the past year and a half or so of families writing in or, or maybe a spokesperson on behalf of a family saying, gosh, we're lucky. You know, there's been times where we've been really lucky to have, you know, my husband or my wife or my partner, or whatever the case may be, was working private sector and kind of floated us for a while at some tough times in the public sector or, you know, thank God for our public sector wage for the other half of the family or for my roommate or whoever it is. Uh, that's working in the public sector. They found some stability. I know that's not unique to Alberta, but it's always an interesting dynamic to read about when people chime in. You say, you know, for Alberta to achieve its economic and social potential, and you could probably apply this to a bunch of different jurisdictions, but I love how you've customized it in your essay. We've got to prioritize education. We've got to foster social inclusivity and diversity. We've got to uphold our brand and reputation. We could talk about this for six hours and look positively toward the future. People will say, well, that that, that that sounds a little out there for an economist. Why all the talk about social structures and why all the time, you know, how is that so relevant? Yeah. Well, when they ask me, you know, what is the path forward for Alberta? Typically, economists will start, to, especially when we talk about the economy, we will talk about, well, we need, you know, good tax policy and we need uh, incentives for businesses to move and we need things to boost, you know, industrial productivity. And all of that is 100% true. I don't take issue with any of that. But there have been so many other economists and business advocacy groups that have put out really, really good uh, lists of what we need to get there. I thought it's not much use for me just to repeat the list uh, that's already been given. And if you do want a good list, the Business Council of Alberta, I got a lot of respect for that shop. They've got some really great recommendations, specifically around you know tax and productivity enhancing uh, policies. But I thought here's my opportunity as an economist to maybe suggest some things we need more philosophically or more things that the average Albertan you know, like you and I, things we can do, attitudes we can change. We can't just constantly be heaping this at the feet of government and saying, you got to fix your policy or we can't go anywhere. There are things, uh, responsibilities that Albertans have, like protecting our reputation and brand, like being positive minded and not being so negative all the time. Again, I've lived my whole life in Alberta and I've never I've never heard so much negativity than in the last three years. This was always a province of can-do people. This was always a province of optimism, of hard work, 100%, of entrepreneurial, you know, all of that spirit has always been there. But I just worry a little bit about kind of how cranky we've become in the last, you know, couple of years. Sure, I admit there are reasons, there are, there are issues we need to settle. There are things, there are irritations with their provinces, the federal government. I get it. I don't deny that. But I don't think by being whiny, we're going to achieve anything. That damages our reputation. Why on earth would businesses and talented young people from around the world, why on earth would they want to come to a province 
where everyone, you know, you turn on on a radio anywhere and a talk show and people sound kind of whiny and kind of cranky. And, you know, we have to we have to guard against that because it, it does damage our reputation and brand. Uh, except for real talk todd where we're just eternally optimistic and positive at all times uh but you know what hey in all seriousness maybe your argument's the one that's going to resonate with people maybe if you can turn positivity or messaging or bipartisan efforts or collaboration between different levels of government if you can if if you can really take a look at that through the lens of economic recovery or of reaching economic potential to some folks and that's that's fine that's their own thing that's really the only thing that resonates with some people when it comes to the role that governments play or whatever else well, and I think it is something that every Albertan can take personal responsibility for. So again, 100%, I agree. You know, government, we need to get policies right. And we're going to have some new mayors coming into uh, both our, our cities across the province. Uh, we're coming out of COVID, you know, over the summer. I think summer and fall is a, is a really good psychological sort of reset for Alberta. Uh, but again, a lot of that starts with the attitude and uh, sort of the mental disposition of 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 every Albertan, not just our politicians. I, I don't I don't typically speak to to economists that do such a beautiful job wordsmithing. But in, in conclusion, your essay nostalgia, you write nostalgia, it's been said, is a cruel lover. Nostalgia is a trick of the mind and it can become a trap from which escape is difficult. Todd, would you give us an assignment? Something to walk with for the rest of the day here. Something to think about over the weekend. I mean, number one, I think your, 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 your comments on, on positivity, your comments on brand and reputation are huge. You've obviously given some great insight on where uh, economies are going, where industries are going, some great job insider advice. What's one thing that you would assign us if you were standing at the front of the classroom today? Well, I think it would be around, you know, this bit about nostalgia. You hear a lot of people saying, and not just politicians, but you hear everyone saying, we need to get this province back on track. And I understand the sentiment in that. But if you think about that sentence, it is very backward looking. It is based in nostalgia. We need to get back to 2014 or back to 2006 or 1978 or, you know, whatever year was a great fiscal or, or economic year for Albert, we have to stop saying that. So my assignment is anytime you hear yourself say it or someone else say it, challenge yourself or that person and say, rather than getting back on track, what are the new tracks we need to forge in this province? The energy sector is going to be part of that, but we also have to be adding to that and developing new tracks as we forge into a new world. We can't look backward. Uh, can we consider the interview to be concluded here now? And then can I just ask you a question? Uh, you take off your ATB chief economist hat. And can I just ask you, I know you're a you're an engaged community member. You're a proud Albertan. I know you've been serving on the boards. Are you still on both at the, at the Glenbow Museum in Calgary and the Alberta Ballet as well? Um, yeah, just, both just out of curiosity. So how how are how are those conversations going around the boardroom table and where's the awareness with regards to recovery? I know a lot of people. I mean, we're working on some some content here when it comes to the performing arts, when it comes to culture and, and, and the bounce back there. Um, how are you at a board level navigating things? I mean, the museum's one thing, but the Alberta Ballet, I would imagine, it's been a tough year and a half. Oh, it's been tough for, for both, for every arts organization, not just the Glenbow and, and, and the mm -hmm. Alberta Ballet. But those two I know uh, quite well because I am on the board. COVID, like for every other organization, was an absolute shock. 
But when we sit back now, now that we're almost through COVID, not quite, but we can start to see, especially the Glenbow Museum, in some ways, the timing of this was perfect. The Glenbow is undergoing a major reinvention of itself as a museum, not quite a teardown of the existing structure, but more than a renovation. It's going to be really exciting. We see what is happening at the Glenbow as an integral part of the revitalization of downtown Calgary and emotionally of the sort of the, the reemergence of, of Alberta. The ballet in the same way, we're, we're not, you know, reconstructing a building, but art and culture, I, I'm convinced as an economist, plays such an important part in our community and that supports economy. Without a strong community base, supported by art and culture, you know, economy is the layer on top of that. Uh, so we need a strong uh, community. We need strong art and culture sector because in a lot of ways, that is the base on which an economy is built. Yeah, beautifully said. Todd, it's always great to connect with you. Uh, I should mention to our audience members that, that want to learn more, of course, they can they can Google the state of the Alberta economy, the path forward. That's the essay that we've been talking about your work. But you also the author of four books, including your latest Spiders in COVID Space, Adapting During and After the Pandemic, released just a couple of months ago. Congratulations on that. It's been great to reconnect with you here. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much, Ryan. It's been wonderful. Have a good day. You as well. That's Todd Hirsch, uh, Vice President and Chief Economist at ATB Financial. Again, his new book, Spiders in COVID Space, Adapting During and After the Pandemic. We'll get to our Real Talk Roundtable coming up in just a moment. Young and queer. It's kicking off our coverage of Pride Month through the month of June. Wanted to let you know right now, we've been really thrilled this month to welcome the team at Campers Village to our roster of Real Talk builders. Campers Village has the best gear for right here. And they know that this summer, like last summer, sticking close to home and enjoying the amazing outdoor playgrounds, in this beautiful nation, probably our best choice and probably the most obvious one when it comes to summer vacation. You know, we know that these moments in nature can help us refresh and recharge. They can inspire us. So if you're getting out there, remember Campers Village is more than just camping gear. They've got a great clothing lineup, including the latest technical, lightweight, waterproof, breathable threads from Patagonia, Mountain Hardware, the North Face and others. Amazing footwear from backpacking boots. That's where I got mine to trail runners to sandals brands like Solomon and Blundstone and and even Birkenstock for all you dirty hippies out there. Sarah Hoyles is looking at me with a big smile on her face. I have so many pairs of Birkenstocks. I love Birkenstocks. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Do you want to, do you have Birkenstocks? Are you wearing Birkenstocks? I didn't look under the table. Are you wearing Birkenstocks right no, now? And no. And you you also encouraged me to to not necessarily always hug that tree. To that's not, true. I, I don't get to have the only, I don't get to be the only one that's called a tree hugger. I was getting, there. I was getting a little bit defensive that you were you immediately were. being characterized as the one who's environmentally aware on this team. Sam and I are sitting here like, what are we like? What, what are we chopped mulch? Campers Village has two stores. <laughs> In Edmonton, one store in Calgary, and the store that's always open is online at campers-village.com. It's, would you believe that actually that last part was not in the script, that 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 impromptu interaction between you and I? amazing. The team at Campers Village did not write dirty hippies into their ad copy. You can find them online at campers-village.com. Brand new partner. They're going to be sending us an email in about 30 seconds like, hey, so about that last ad read... 
Todd's Mechanical. I love this. This is perfect timing after talking to Todd Hirsch. Todd at Todd's Mechanical, different guy. Uh, this is his story. Todd worked in the oil patch for a long time. He was away from his family, long hours. If you've been doing gigs like that on the road, I don't have to explain to you the toll it takes. He said, I want to be at home with my family. I want to set up a business in Edmonton. I want to be Edmonton's best plumber. And if you take a look at his online reviews, that's exactly what he's accomplished. You got to write this number down because when you need it, you don't want to be running around looking for it when when the drywall's starting to bubble and you've got a serious problem. Call Todd's Mechanical at 780-499-7598. 780-499-7598. Todd's Mechanical has the official Real Talk stamp of approval. Thanks to Todd's Mechanical. Well, June is Pride Month. I have to mention very quickly, if you check out my Instagram at Ryan Jesperson, or if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see that today I have released the first image of Jespo's best summer ever pizza. If you're local, if you live in the same part of the country that that we do in Edmonton, Mercer Tavern and I are partnering up this month. The best summer ever pizza, shrimp, bacon, pesto, feta with a wedge of fresh lemon. Are you kidding me? Proceeds through the month of June. Pride Month will benefit Pride Tape. So I encourage you to check it out at Mercer Tavern. I'm excited to welcome these three individuals to our Real Talk Roundtable. It's a tradition every Friday right around this time. We get into issues that matter and we meet people that are making a big difference in their community. That includes Ophelia Ravencroft, uh, based out of Newfoundland. Uh, Ophelia is a uh, a non-binary lesbian woman, a feminist researcher, and an advocate for sex workers and queer and trans rights. Shane Scott is a member of Edmonton's LGBTQ2S plus community, passionate about breaking down barriers. Shane's a policy analyst in advanced education strategic policy, serves as the co-chair of the Alberta Public Service LGBTQ2S plus employee resource group. And we're going to talk about a new fundraiser that Shane has launched. And Jay Simpson uh, is a two-spirit OG creep person of the Buffalo clan with with roots uh, in two different Cree nations. They often write about being queer in the child welfare system, as well as being queer and indigenous. Ophelia, Shane, Jay, welcome to Real Talk. Welcome to our roundtable. We're thrilled to have you here. Why don't we begin with with a discussion on, on pride itself? Because every individual that we talk to is going to have a different perspective on the significance, on the priorities, on what we're hoping to achieve with regards to informed discussions uh, like like these Ophelia if I could ask you first what does pride mean to you I'd, uh, I'd really rather not go first I have to say <laughs> <laughs> well that's no problem Shane Shane you want to go first sure uh, yeah I can start I mean to start thank you for having me on this morning uh, it's a really great honor I, I'm joining from beautiful Kananassas country Treaty 7 territory uh, I'm out in the mountains, so hopefully nothing walks up behind me. So Hang I'm on a second. Are you tell, you're telling me you're telling me this is not a fake Zoom background? You're telling me that you are literally sitting on a folding camping <laughs> no, chair I'm, with real trees behind I, you? I am I am sitting in a in a folding camping chair out wow. in the woods. <laughs> I thought I was gonna compliment you on how how real your fake background looked. But Shane, let yeah. me not step on well, your real talk and this is it. Yeah. <laughs> real talk, real backgrounds. Shane, what does pride mean to you? Yeah, yeah, I think you really hit it, uh, hit the nail on the head to start. I, I think for everyone, pride is is immensely different. And I think people have different feelings about pride. And for, I know for myself, when I think about pride, it's a deeply personal experience. I, I mean, as someone who exists in this society and, and everyone I think who, who does celebrate pride 
has their own experiences, whether it is just with um, homophobia or transphobia, but also um, I think it's a time to reflect on how other intersections overlap with that. And, you know, like um, your economic situation, your class, uh, with racism, colonization, I think um, those all inform your own personal experience. And I know for myself, this is a time of year when I reflect on my own, my own journey, how far I've come from coming out in high school to uh, having to leave home to um, now being in kind of the, the leadershipy role that I am now. Um, I think there's a lot to reflect on, but I think it's also a really important time to acknowledge, you know, how far we've come, but also how far we have to go and uh, what parts of the community are being left behind. Um, and uh, what we can do as individuals, both as a member of the community to lift up those voices and as allies, um, to support the folks that are, are coming along with the journey with us. Shane, just to clarify, did I hear you say uh, coming out in high school and then leaving home? Or did you say coming out in high school and having to leave home? I just want to want to clarify what, what your coming out experience involved. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. Yeah, I, that's an important clarification because for some people, I think they're forced to leave home either because they're being kicked out or it's just an unsafe environment. Uh, and for others like myself, uh, I didn't have the most positive coming out experience. I still had support of my family. I wasn't kicked out of my house, but um, it, it, I chose to leave uh, to make space to figure out who I was going to be in life and um, figure out who I was with my own sexual identity, but also as a person, as a young adult. So um, I think there's there's two sides to it that are important to, to, to delineate. Jay, I, I, I'm so looking forward to talking to you about your book. It was never going to be okay. And I promise we'll get into the pages. We'll get there. But generally speaking, um, so we can establish an understanding, what does pride mean to you? Well, it, like you said, it, it, it's different for everyone. But uh, I would have to say I'm, I'm a little bit of an abolitionist right now with the pride we see today as it's been co-opted by corporations and capitalism and no longer represents the uh, grassroots frontline work that it, it was. It was a protest against white supremacy, uh, cishet normatives, and most importantly, against the police. Um, so pride for me today is a resistance. And right now, uh, a lot of my community is going through a lot of resistance with a lot of very traumatic news. and. I, I want to just say that for my pride, it is a resistance and that resistance can be joy as well. Um, and that, that that's what it's like for me. And I just like to fight. So <laughs> that's what my pride is. I love can, can we dig into resistance can be joy every once in a while when I'm doing an interview or talking to somebody, I'll scribble something down quickly and I'll later transcribe it into a more permanent notebook. That's going to be added there. How can resistance be joy? It, it isn't just fighting and it isn't just turmoil. It, it Resistance is getting together, being in community, in culture, in protocol, in relationship. And that is joy, you know, like seeing Ophelia and seeing Shane, that's joy to see us existing and, and being so loud and doing that work. That is resistance. Therefore, it is joy. This is uh, by design. Is, is a is a panel of young community leaders um, and, and, and I recognize that there will be issues and this is one of them Jay you've you, you've just honed in on a very important one and and, and, I, and I think even for background um, you know pride movements and organizations uh, around the world have have seen disruption and have seen protests and in, and in some circumstances have seen very uncomfortable uh, developments in a good way. 
that have that have forced everyone to reconsider a whole bunch of things, um, in, including, I mean, someone's writing me a comment right now privately about the patriarchy here in Pride, uh, which is a fascinating angle to, to pursue. Ophelia, is, is that something that's on your radar as, as a relatively as, as a young person and a young community leader? How does that impact how you view Pride? Well, I mean, it certainly does, you know, and, and, and something that trying to locate my own position with that has been kind of challenging because my own sense of pride historically was very rooted in that kind of that, in that, that sense of celebration. Uh, growing up in Halifax, uh, you know, I think the first time I went to a, a parade, uh, you know, I was about 10 years old. My father and I kind of stumbled into it on Spring Garden Road. I knew perfectly well who I was at this point. Uh, and it was a, a brilliant, beautiful, liberating experience to be surrounded by people who, you know, you at least had a sense would be more supportive of what I ultimately knew my story was. Uh, and to see people, you know, that were living their lives in the way that I wanted to, that were able to reflect that on uh, on that stage was really remarkable. Um, but yeah, of course, I think, uh, you know, those, those conversations are incredibly important. And it's something that um, trying to strike the balance of, I think actually, Jay, you really hit the nail on the head. The fact that we are all be, we need to be doing uh, the work of resistance. We need to be standing. You know, we need to be pushing back against uh, oppression. This is the reason that pride exists in the first place. Um, but that part of the, our existence, to a certain extent, is that, and our proud, open, uh, cheerful existence is that as well. We live in a society that tells us that we're not supposed to be proud of who we are. So, so I think it's uh, you know there there's a lot there's a uh, many conversations to be had here, but I think that's going in the right direction. I'm sitting here as as Jay talks about the uh, you know the corporate angle on pride and how that's super annoying. Right after I've discussed how my pizza fundraiser in partnership with the restaurant <laughs> is raising funds for pride, I'm going okay. So I'm part of the problem here. But this is but but in all seriousness, um, let, let's talk about it. This is this is where people come. People show up every single day. This audience uh, to be made to feel uncomfortable in the best way, myself included. So let's talk about this. I mean, Shane, I can't ignore that you're just nodding and nodding. You know, so but I want to I want to open this up to all three of you and please feel free to engage with one another. You don't have to be tapped on the shoulder by me if you want to chime in. But is it good? I mean, let's get into this. You know, if if like vehicle manufacturers and big banks and, and huge organizations and corporations are all changing their logos to reflect those pride colors through the month and they're doing pride month and they have their employees with the company float entered in the pride parade, maybe not through covid, but you get my point. Um it goes mainstream in the sense that it has a bunch of people talking about it. It can be great tools for fundraising. Uh, so, so where does it fall short or why is it a problem? I want to, I want to ask each of you to touch on this, but Shane, why don't we start with you? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I think I've just been nodding along. Everything that's been said is really great. And I, I got a full body shiver, not because I'm outside and cold, but because resistance can be joy, I think is the most beautiful phrase I've ever heard. And I think that the ability and, and what I feel with the, the fundraiser that I've been doing is, you know, the ability to come together and affirm our own experiences, uh, the ex uh, hear kind of echoes from other people around us are, is super important. But I think particularly around kind of the, the rainbow washing or the corporate corporatization of pride, uh, I think it's really important to, to, I think, hold these organizations accountable. I think it's, it's great when people want to support the community you know, spread love for the community, but you have to put your money where your mouth is. And sometimes that is just money. I mean, you know, people want to um, say they're supporting or supporting local queer organizations or queer individuals, and then uh, they change their logo. They maybe post like one pride, two pride posts, say put up a rainbow and call it a day. Uh, and I think, 
you know, even within the queer community, there's there's a certain level of that kind of complacency that also happens. Um, and I think that point around resistance, it, it's what are you actually doing? You know, pride is a time to celebrate, reflect, um, mourn in many cases, but it's also a time to act. Uh, and so I think these organizations, if they want to participate and, and you know, um, use queer identity as, as something that they want to celebrate, they actually have to do something about that. Um, and also be accountable to the community when they're doing so. Uh, I think, you know, uh, making one donation and then at the same time having transphobic workplace policies doesn't help anyone. You know, that, that's, that's taking one step forward, two steps back. Uh, and I think corporations need to be accountable to that if they want to participate in, especially the, the overall discourse around pride. Jay? Okay, thank you so much. Uh, <clears throat> I've got so much to say about this, but I'll, I'll keep it as brief. Thank you, No, Shane. you don't have to. No, that's, you um, don't have to keep it brief at all. <laughs> dig in. Okay, so I'm going to dig in. Uh, first and foremost, a lot of the banks, um, they shut down and restrict sex workers' accounts. And uh, with that, a large population of the sex worker population is LGBTQ. Um, this also... Uh, is deeply dangerous because it's a lot of folks' uh, livelihoods and safety net. Um, when we also look at corporations, we have to see how they operate on a smaller level as well. I was empl uh, employed at a workplace that, uh, you know, June 1st, it had the rainbow logo, but I was transitioning and I got fired for being transgender. Um, and it was one of the most devastating things because at the time I was uh, a, a pretty uh, in a pretty big position in the town I lived in in, in regards to queer identity. Um, so for me, whenever I see a corporation or a business with a rainbow logo, I'm just like, what is the what is the practice? Like, where is the accountability? You can't just wear it. You can't call yourself an ally. There has to be proof in that pudding. And there, there just hasn't been in regards to like your pizza fundraiser, 100% of the proceeds are going to this. That is different than these corporations that are actually making money off of this rainbow washing. And it perpetuates and reestablishes a culture of white supremacy because these organizations inherently move a white agenda. I'm so I'm grateful for this. This is like I'm having like my own conversation going on in my head right now, which is forcing me to rethink a whole bunch of things, which is absolutely entirely the whole point of this exercise. And um, and I'm so grateful for this conversation. Ophelia, the word ally or allyship is a fascinating one. We could spend an hour talking about what an ally is. Who gets to call themselves an ally or if anybody gets to call themselves an ally and what the role of an ally is for everybody that's going to hear this podcast or that's going to see this interview what does an ally look like to you well i think uh you know you, you there's a section of wording there but who gets to call themselves an ally, and that ultimately is at the core of this you hear it's it's to the point of almost becoming a cliche but it's accurate allyship is not something that you get to label yourself with it's something which is conferred on you by the community to which you to which you are hopefully uh, maintaining some variety of allyship. Uh, I think that support in this case, you know, I, 
I think the common thread of, of corporate of the criticisms of corporatized pride of a lot of what we hear uh, is the way that the voices of, of queer people tend to get kind of backgrounded in favor of the support of others. That you know, it, it, you know, is the pat on the back meant to be bigger than the the tangible support that you're providing? So frequently, it is those questions of you know, yeah, you have a company with the rainbow logo that still has horrible workplace policies. I've had those experiences myself, as is Jay. I think most people in our community certainly would say that they have. Uh, I think you know it's pride really is about stepping back and this and it's about a lesson to be learned for the rest of the year the centering queer voices requires in some cases uh, a level of active engagement with queer voices and a level of active restraint on, on behalf of uh people who'd like to claim some variety of allyship uh you know take this opportunity now um you know forget the rainbow logos forget the you know the queer slogans forget the commercials forget you know uh you know the the little bits of of, of you know of verbiage and of merchandise and so on and forget the profit making enterprises find ways to send if, if you were a business find ways to send your queer employees find ways to send their voices and their actions and their experiences give them leeway to do things in your business that uh that you very likely as you know a corporate overload wouldn't do yourself uh if you're a community member find space and time to center and celebrate and champion uh queer voices and perspectives in this time and then actually carry that through into the rest of the year um you know this isn't simply as i, I think in some cases there may be a level of I, I hesitate to say good intention, but uh, I think some people really do fail to understand the scope of the issue here. They're, they think that it's a question of, oh, you know, I, I believe live and let live and so on, which is a wonderful sentiment. Um, but the actions that you take will ultimately impact to what extent you carry that sentiment through into your life. Um, you know, take this as an opportunity to realize that pride, if you're an ally, isn't simply about standing on the sidelines of the parade and cheering as the floats go by and then uh, going off and engaging cheerfully with homophobic and transphobic and queerphobic systems. It's about actually taking, you know, the realization that people are putting themselves on the line here. Now, take what you've learned, walk away and actually do something good. Hmm. I, if I can, if I can add as well, I, I think uh, the the point of filia made too. I think it, it's not also pride and allyship isn't a moment in time either. And I think the same can be said for corporations or individuals. You know, for for queer people, pride is 365 days a year, 24 seven. You know, it's yeah. it's individuals' experiences, individuals' identities. Uh, and I think for corporations and individuals alike, when it comes to being an ally, you know, it's not just posting the rainbow logo or posting a, a pride photo or showing up at a pride parade and um, and drinking sangria out of a water bottle or whatever. You know, there's there's other actions you you have to take throughout the year. And um, you know, corporations that's addressing workplace policies, I think actively choosing to to be deliberate when building a culture of inclusion. You mentioned my work with the employee resource group, you know, how are you um, challenging those norms in the workplace culturally, not just at a policy level. Um, and as individuals, like um, Ophelia said, you know, um, having difficult conversations um, with the people around you, not, not engaging in, um, you know, the like a transphobic joke or a homophobic joke, you know, actually calling out your friends when they say horrible things. Um, that are problematic and, and not just doing during pride or not just on June 1st when you post the photo. I think it's it's more than just one moment in time. Shane, can you give us an example? I mean, it, when it comes to, you know, advancements that are being made or at least work that is occurring, uh, focused efforts toward impacting change in workplaces. Can you give us a tangible example of maybe something you've worked on or a policy that you've seen change that that may not have been possible five or 10 or 15 years ago? Yeah, yeah. I think there's, um, I, I can speak to kind of my own experiences and some of the work I've been doing. And I think the one of the biggest things I've noticed is, is a central support for lifting up queer voices in the workplace. Um, I think for a long time, and I think this is a shift in diversity and inclusion overall kind of in a corporate setting. I think for a long time, it was like, you know, we, we come up with a diversity and inclusion policy and we'll call it a day. Uh, and I think that the, the community members that are in those organizations are the ones that are really 
um, trying to, to push and make it more more than just words on a page. Uh, and in our setting, you know, we've we've been supported in uh, planning and supporting a gender and sexuality workplace training course that's being offered across the entire organization. Uh, and we're in that. It's queer people who are leading that, centering that, sharing their own experiences, uh, which I think is is really powerful and has a lot more impact even than just you know hiring a, a one off consultant who um, does a half day session. Hmm. You know, it's it's uh, I appreciate Lance is is uh, a member of our live audience here this morning, uh, chiming in on our uh, chat on YouTube, says uh, Lance says as the leader or as a leader rather of the Edmonton Pride Festival from 2002 to 2008. Uh, Lance says we spent a lot of energy encouraging corporate support and participation as a means to expand our reach, uh, says it's interesting to see how things are changing. Uh, that from Lance, uh, I, I feel like, you know, you, you all three of you, uh, you know, Jay, yourself included, have have done a pretty good job I- explaining to us why the so-called rainbow washing trend can be really problematic. We've seen other evolutions of pride. We have seen, uh, you know, the sort of grassroots protest movements arise around things like underrepresentation of of black and indigenous people of color, queer people of color. Uh, we've certainly seen a lot of talk around uh, law enforcement involvement in pride. Jay, how else do you see pride changing or evolving from a young person's perspective? So <clears throat> I I witness, like as someone who's very close to 30, um, I've seen pride go through it where it was very small and then corporations joined. And when I was much younger, I really thought it was a good thing. And then as I began to witness and see uh, the way things were falling, this this money that was coming in from these big corporations, they weren't being dispersed into the community the way they should be. They were being dispersed into very specific projects that benefited um, a higher class and folks who had access to it. Um, and I have never attended a big city pride event. I've only ever attended like one or two pride events at uh, the universities I've attended. And I, I just don't see myself attending any prides uh, for now, just due to the optics of um, who is like welcome there. As, uh, as an indigenous trans woman, oftentimes I get gaslit in these situations when I speak out. And a lot of the violence I've experienced has been from white cis gay men. And when I, when I talk about what I'm saying, I'm called divisive or disruptive and that I can't just put aside my emotions in order to celebrate. And I don't think that's fair because this rainbow washing is washing away that also. We need to be able to have a conversation in which privilege exists in our community. And I think a lot of the people who celebrate pride, they forget they're white. They just do. They really, they really just forget about the the privileges of structure um, that they have over other members of community. And I am a, a white passing indigenous person. There are black and uh, indigenous folks of color who experience um, a lot more barriers in these communities. So I, I always think there's room for improvement and I always think there's room for accountability. 
Ophelia, one of one of the uh, I mean, with regards to the work that you've been doing, uh, we should point out that you're, you're doing Ph.D. research in ethnomusicology, which I know nothing about, but I'm fascinated by it uh, at Memorial University studying issues of gender equity in St. John's heavy metal community. You also ran for St. John's City Council last year on an intersectional anti-oppression platform. And and your campaign is described as, as a pretty substantial as securing a pretty substantial vote share. Uh for a candidate running on a platform like you did, what did you learn from that experience? And, and, and what did public response to your candidacy tell you? What did you learn from the entire experience? Well, I mean, I think uh, in terms of in terms of what I learned, uh, if anything, well, I mean, I'm running again in the fall, so you can get a sense that I had a pretty positive, <laughs> a pretty positive view of the whole thing. Uh, you know, I, I was in a, I was a relative public unknown in a field of, of eight candidates um, all of whom had substantially bigger profiles than myself, uh, and all of them had a lot more privilege than I did in many other ways. And we came second out of eight, uh, which is which is pretty which is pretty cool, especially in a in a city that you know. And I heard so many times, you know, repeatedly over and over again, uh, you know, we have not had a lot of transgender people that have run in this province before. Uh, we've had you know, there's Jen, there's been Jennifer McCreeth and Jenna Hickey, and there have been folks uh, in the community who have um, who have run at different times, but uh, it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't commonly the case. Uh, prior and, and I think there was a perception that you know the, the reaction was going to be very negative. Um, the cynical side of me, I think, I, I think really wants to really wants to say that what I learned was that people learned how to mask their transphobia very effectively, um, because so frequently it's you know you get a positive reception and then that wouldn't get converted into a vote, which of course is inevitable in politics. Um, but you become aware and then looking at other people's positioning that it's kind of okay. Well, you know you're trying to place you're trying to position yourself as a kind of safe alternative to me as though you know your privilege um, if you're another progressive if you're a white cis progressive a white cis male progressive that your privilege essentially kind of you know renders you some, somehow more acceptable um i think the reality of it is uh, you know ryan at the beginning of this you said that you know people tune into real talk to hear uncomfortable conversations and to be rendered uncomfortable i think uh, engagement with the political system ultimately has to do something fairly similar as uh, in a certain way perhaps engagement with pride needs to um you know if if if, if as a theme of this, I think it's the, the beauty and discomfort. Uh, people have to be prepared to accept that, you know, the, these systems, they will impact some certain people more than others. Um, to bring it back around to the corporatization of pride and so on as well, um, you know, if I were a kid in a small town uh, who was seeing ads on the television, uh, you know, particularly if this had been 20 years ago when maybe my sense of, uh, of community online or area in Halifax was not that substantial, uh, I'd probably feel really seen. And I think uh, there, there, are there are circumstances under which, you know, these things can have benefit, but they are not adequate, of course. And at the end of the day, if the policies that you're putting in place are still resulting in money being withheld from, we live under capitalism, if money is being withheld from queer communities, from queer people, from trans people, uh, from non-binary people, uh, the reality of this is that unfortunately change is not going to be that substantial. And it's something very similar in, within the political process. I would encourage any trans and non-binary person who's ever debated running, please do. You know, if I can, if I can get away with this, if I could do as well as I did, it, it's, uh, it's proof positive that uh, many more of us can begin to have success we belong in this we belong in this field we belong everywhere um but it's about helping people understand that yeah you know you may have certain discomfort with some of the topics that i brought up you may have a discomfort with the way that i approach things but have enough empathy to understand that i'm speaking from you know from particular positions where i know that work needs to be done in a way that may be a little bit difficult but that is necessary and that as an ally as a supporter as a community member with a strong social conscience hopefully that's something that you know that you can get behind hmm. Well said. I'm, I'm appreciating the Thanks. comments. We've got such an engaged audience right now. Uh, Karen, I love this from Karen. She says at my church, uh, we had a workshop on on 
being allies to the LGBTQ plus community. We, we learned it's not about us saying what we're going to do. It's about us listening to what people need and what people want us to do. I'm just thrilled that conversation's happening at a church. Uh, there, there's also an interesting debate going on in the live chat. I'd, I'd like to put this to the three of you. Uh, we've dubbed this our young and queer roundtable, and a lot of our audience members right now are, are, are indicating their discomfort uh, with the use of the word queer. Um, Shane, because I, I can see you nodding your head. I want to come to you first. I mean, how, how do you feel about the word itself, and 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 who should use it? Yeah, I think that's been a, a conversation for many years across the community. I, when I was in high school many years ago, I um, I got involved in uh, starting my high school's Gay Straight Alliance. And I remember joining a community kind of table. And that was one of the conversations we were having was, should there be Gay Straight Alliances or Queer Straight Alliances or Rainbow Alliances or some other name? Um, and that was at the point, I think, when a lot of schools were were changing their names to become Queer Straight Alliances. But the, the dynamic then, I think the dynamic now, and it's something I I feel um, in my workplace as well with the, the LGBTQ2S+, employee resource group, not the queer employee resource group. Um, so I think there's a bit of a generational divide in some ways where I think for many people that that was a weaponized term. That was one, a term uh, that they still associate with trauma, discrimination, uh, and and rightly so. Uh, and so I think it's it's it represents an evolution in language in the community, uh, which happens in any society and it's happening within our, with our own community. Um, but I also think it's important to um, I think in many ways, the reclamation, and I'm sure um, some of the other folks today will speak to that, but like, I think the reclamation and that, that feeling of uncomfortableness is also important because I think, you know, pride isn't meant to be comfortable. I think there's, you can have moments where you're like, you know, I'm so happy to be where I am, but overall it's about, you know, your own feelings, your own, your own experiences, but also um, it should be uncomfortable to help us move forward. Uh, and so I think that's one of the, the, the benefits of kind of using queer as, as that umbrella term. Jay, what do you think? So I, I use the word queer. I self-identify with the word queer. Um, and I, I definitely think it's generational. When I came out to my foster parents uh, after I had aged out, um, my foster dad said that he would never use the word queer to describe me because he, uh, he grew up in a time where uh, he had friends who were called that and he'd lost friends. Um, uh, to actions where that you uh, that word was used with violence behind mm. it, and I think that's very legitimate. I think that is uh, a very fair reason to be boundaried about that. Um, language changes and language shifts, and as uh, Indigenous uh, Two Spirit Indigenous queer person, I uh, are my community has a long relationship with that because before the word two-spirit, there was a French word, which was a slur. And that was what was used to describe us. And so the, the process in which language changes, I think is a very beautiful thing because there is a conversation of discomfort, but being uncomfortable is really a necessary part in growing. It's growing pains. And it, uh, I usually respect folks who say that they don't want to use that word around them. And I ask what language they like to use. And that's the language I'll use regarding them. Um, but it, it's something I self-identify as. And it's an English word. It's a colonial word. I don't think it's fully accurate in all of its ways because I think English fails us. Ophelia, how do you feel about it? 
I use queer for myself as well. I mean, my, my language is, you know, it's not quite the dirt front of the dartboard, but it's close. I kind of, I'm kind of all over the place. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm aware of the, the, the fact is, you know, as, as Jay says, that language evolves, uh, even the use of a word like lesbian, for example, which I cheerfully use for myself, uh, because it's what I, it's what I grew up knowing, knowing. and it's, it, that's, it, it's what I identify with. Uh, you know, that can be fraud as well. I, the fact is, I think that, um, um, umbrella terms are, are uncomfortable in a community that is so that is so rooted, I think, in radical acceptance of the of the ident of identities of individuals. And the fact is that uh, you know a catch-all term like queer can be problematic for some folks and unproblematic for others. And, and you know, as, as has been said, that's something that we kind of need to be prepared to deal with. Uh, listen to the language that people won't use for them, and be prepared to use that. You know, if we're in an environment in which certain requests are made, do our best to comply. Um, at the same time, as that you know, I think. Um, to look at someone else and say, well, I don't approve of you using the word queer for yourself. Uh, it's the reclaim movement downward has been there for quite some time. You know, I, I think back to the to Homer Simpson's anger at John Waters in, the, in that uh, episode of Simpsons from season eight called, oh, Lord, I uh, can't recall the name now, uh, in which he decries the reclaim movement for the word queer because it's been his in his homophobic quote, that's our word for making fun of you. And it's, you know, thank God that that's not fully the case anymore, that we are now in a place that, you know, that word has been stripped of a great deal of its negative connotation uh, in, in some people's eyes, that we can use it in a proud way, that I can use it, that Jay can use it in a proud way, uh, and that we can, and that that can be a something going forward. But of course, for individuals in specific spaces, you know, I think basic respect still applies. And it's, and it's fair to say that uh, if there are people or, or persons that don't want to use that, maybe we can leave that out in those moments. Uh, Jillian says, I'm so happy uh, privilege is being brought up. Jillian says, I hated how Black Lives Matter was dismissed and insulted for asking that police not participate in pride in uniform. And now it's being done in a lot of different pride events. Uh, the the theme, if you will, or, or at least one of the things that you three panelists have in common. Again, we're, we're talking to young community leaders here. Uh, do you see, would you say, uh, Shane, that, that you see uh, a positive developments um, in relationships uh, with the LGBTQ2S plus community and law enforcement police? Is that I mean, you know, for, for context, we talked to to two gentlemen, uh, former Edmonton city councilor, Michael fair and uh, a playwright, Darren Hagen, uh, a queer historian just a few days ago about the 40th anniversary of, of the Pisces health spa, the bathhouse raids in Edmonton and, and a really deplorable time in Edmonton's history and, and, and the root of some of these strained relationships, if you will, that's probably underestimating uh, or, or under describing it uh, insufficiently anyway. Uh, but between law enforcement and, and, and the gay community in that context, do you see an evolution there? Do you see uh, a, a change in tone there based on age demographics or a generational difference? I mean, Jay, I can see you're shaking your head. I'll come to you right after Shane. Shane, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's really important. Um, like one of my like personal values, and I, I've heard it from a number of authors now, is the idea of kind of radical empathy. And I think uh, it's especially important in the context of pride because I think with such a, a diverse community that has so many different kinds of experiences, it's important that we look to the people who and listen to the people who are saying there's a problem. And I, for myself as a, as a white gay man, I may, I mean, I sometimes feel uncomfortable around police, but you know, I'm not the one day to day who's having, you know, really problematic interactions with police officers. And so I think as a community, we need to look to the people who are, are saying there's a problem and listen to those people, validate those experiences, because those are very real. Uh, and I also think it's important to acknowledge that 
as a as a queer community, you know, we don't just experience homophobia or transphobia. There's members of our community that also experience racism and classism. Uh, they are, are have um, experienced episodic um, houselessness. Like there's there's so many other experiences in the community that people have, and I think it's really important as community members, especially, we need to. Uh, to be empathetic and listen to those voices, put ourselves in other people's shoes to the best we can. And uh, I think give those people the mic. And in this situation, it, when it comes to policing, I don't think there's been enough progress uh, with those communities, uh, parts of our community specifically. Um, you know, and I think no matter how much progress we might, we might make at a high level, it's really important to see who's kind of being left out by that progress. Jay, you didn't even need me to finish my question before you knew how you felt about it, before you knew your answer. Take us into your perspective. So when, how I think about it is there is um, a lot of community conversation and experience showing the fact that police are unsafe to the Uh, QT BIPOC community. And when we look at the life expectancy of like black and brown trans women, uh, the life expectancy doesn't go typically past 40. And uh, one would think that with this research and these statistics that they would be considered more protected or more resources provided to ensure life expectancy and safety but we're not seeing that. We are seeing um, more deaths and violence in the arms of enforcement um, rather than protection. And we also have to look at each of our city's own um, homophobic and transphobic past. The city of Vancouver has been uh, taken to court over transphobia and they have they fought tooth and nail to not abide by the rulings. And then they're going around saying that they are a safe space to queer and trans folks. And it's like, well, all of us saw what happened and all of us saw what you did. And when uh, Vancouver itself, um, when Black Lives Matter Vancouver was asking for no police and pride, very specifically no vehicles or no uniforms, the community gaslit them specifically the queer community, the the white queer community. And watching that was the most devastating thing because I expected it, uh, but it was still disappointing. And with everything that happened last year, the same people who were advocating for police are now posting a black square on Instagram. And all I have to give them is a round of applause because that's the attention they were looking for. It's performative. And so my belief is that if these folks who would raid queer spaces and uh, force uh, trans women to take off their makeup and take off their clothes to prove their gender, I, I, I definitely don't think that that history has any place in my resistance at all. So I, I take a very strong stance. Ophelia, how does this resonate with you personally? I wholeheartedly agree with Jay. I, I in fact, can barely add to that. Uh, what I will say, um, this is a this debate has actually been uh, fairly kind of hot button uh, in St. John's in the last couple of days. Uh, our local uh, pride uh, organization, St. John's Pride, uh, for years there was a back and forth uh, around questions of police presence in uh, in our pride parades uh, and in pride events, uh, uniform police, of course. Uh, and at first, uh, there was some community consultation that was done with surveys and so on, uh, which resulted in a majority of participants saying that 
they were comfortable with uniform police and pride or more you know i think the wording was that they wanted uniform police and pride in, in pride which which is very much kind of i could get into the wording but i won't um but that has that the pendulum has not swung the other way and sjp has just announced i think it was two or three days ago um that they're requesting that uniform police no longer attend any any st john's pride events uh there's been a little bit of controversy in the community we talked about age you know i don't want to generalize but yeah there has been a certain age divide uh in, in looking at all my comments and hearing uh, the words in the in the community um in that people who are younger, I think, are a little bit likelier to understand the way that police presence can tr can trigger traumas, can uh, present you know a dangerous circumstance for perhaps some people. Um, but I think the the response that kind of that stuck with me um, was hearing over and over again, "Well, you need to consult the entire community before you do this." But aside from the fact that the entire community has been consulted, the reality of this is that queer and trans rights are not about majority rule situations. They are about, and you know, if we if we defaulted all of this to majority rules, then you know, what would that have meant for the fight for trans rights, for marriage equality, uh, for adoption rights, for anything that we've been through? The reality of this is that very frequently we have a society that is steeped in injustice and patriarchy and racism and transphobia and homophobia, many other in misogyny, uh, sexism, uh, many other things, and that we. When we have a society that is rooted like that, a large part of our fight is about understanding it. we have to be able to center specific voices to make sure that their needs are addressed, even if a majority of respondents to a survey or a plebiscite or whatever wouldn't necessarily say, well, this is something that I want. It's because it's an ethical, it's an ethical good. It's on the side of justice. And that, I think, ultimately is what uh, the issue is, you know, the way of looking at the question of police and pride. Um, there are communities and individuals who really desperately need this solved now. And the fact is that in every community where that's taking place, pride is becoming a lot safer for them. Uh, the, their logic is sound. Uh, I, I don't, frankly, I, I simply can't get with the counter arguments. So, so that's kind of where I am. And that's, uh, you know, and I'm proud of us uh, for, for taking that stand going forward. Uh, it's, it, it comes a little late, I'll say. Um, and there's certainly more that could be done, but this is a good start. Jay, you, uh, you, you've written uh, a great deal about uh, being queer in the child welfare system. Uh, about being queer and indigenous um, your, your collection of poetry a powerful debut it was never going to be okay uh, described by uh, billy ray belcourt as a vital artifact of a decolonial future shortlisted for the 2021 indigenous voices awards uh, named one of four finalists in the published poetry in english category um, shortlisted for a 2021 relit award earlier in April. Uh, you see, you see the applause. I will join the chorus here of, of those of us here on the panel and, and congratulations to you, but it's obviously such important subject matter. Forgive me um, for acknowledging the other story uh, aside from pride that, ha that has uh, broken the heart of uh, hearts of millions of people. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, the discovery of what indigenous voices have have been screaming for years, uh, what existed outside a residential school in Kamloops. And we all have a pit in our stomach because we know it's just the beginning. And we know that the road ahead will be a difficult one um, as 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 we try to deconstruct and understand and listen and move forward. When you talk about a decolonial future in the context of our conversation today, is there an intersection and I'll acknowledge the emotion you're displaying right now, and I'm about to join you. But how are you processing what we've seen out of Kamloops through the lens of your personal perspective? I used to live in Kamloops, and I have a lot of found family there. And uh, it's very, very hard uh, 
I knew they were there. It was talked about. The elders would talk about it. I was in a relationship. Uh, my first two-spirit mentor is Shikwetmik. Um, and it, it's, it's devastating. It is one of the most heartbreaking things because we knew, we know still, you know, the other day, 70 children were found under a church in Saskatchewan. There, there, there are these children's bodies scattered across this country. And they were loved and they are loved. And it is still happening today when we look at the rates of death in Indigenous uh, foster kids. It's astronomical. And uh, one of the statistics out of BC is uh, an, uh, a foster kid dies every three days. And uh, when we look at the statistics across the province, Manitoba, uh, the youth in care in Manitoba, 90% Indigenous, but they only make up like 10% of the population. We need to look at how this is still happening today. Everyone is uh, being really like galvanized by this. Um, but Indigenous children are still dying at fast, fast rates. And those are futures being taken away by these colonial structures that were designed to do this. And, and that is what this... Uh, state was founded on is the destruction of indigenous bodies and when uh, the colonizers came they got rid of what they deemed as deviant sexualities and bodies first uh, Christopher Columbus very specifically slaughtered queer and trans indigenous people because they were the knowledge holders they were the keepers of the law and the stories and that is that was the whole basis of this, uh, this, uh, these territories, colonization. And when you look at the colonization across the world, it's these bodies that were deemed deviant that were destroyed first. And so to me, it's so tied together um, and you can't remove them. You can't, they are so tied together. And it is so hard to try to put aside any emotion to talk about it. Um, with grace because Canada has an issue with palatability. Canada likes to only listen to those who can speak in a certain language and don't show rage and don't show frustration. But I am so mad and I am so angry and I don't have any tolerance for any sort of uh, dissenting conversation about this or debate. These are children who died at the hands of white priests and nuns. And these priests and nuns, after these schools were closed, didn't disappear. They didn't randomly decide that they were good and what they did was wrong. They continued in, in educational systems. They continued um, in child welfare systems. And they helped create the system that is today. And so I just need Canada to know that there's a lot going on and that these people, some of them are still alive. It wasn't even that long ago. We've we've um, first of all, thank you and much love to you. Um, we've heard from we're, we're hearing from residential school survivors that are reaching out to the show. Uh, one in particular reached out to me. Uh, she said, I graduated from a residential school in 1996. Like like she's a year younger than me. I graduated high school in 95. Like this this, this is recent history. And, and even the use of the word history, like you point out, Jay, like th this is the now. This is the present. This is the reality. 
right and 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 i do commit to as a as a as a host of a of a platform like this to furthering these conversations and and to digging deeper into we read a letter um, i'm not sure if you would have seen it on a on a past episode of the show just a couple of shows ago from from a woman named laura who wrote in talking about her experience working in the child welfare system and it was heartbreaking she said that she understood why the families hated her um she said but she still felt such love and she brought everything she could to that job missing you know, family holidays and family time to try to work together, she said, to to try to bring families back together, to try to keep indigenous families intact. The one sentence of the letter she wrote in that just punched all of us between the eyes, she said, she said, it did happen. I did achieve it once. It happened once. And for her own personal reasons, and she detailed a few of them in the letter, she she ultimately moved on with her career. I think it was she didn't say it was too much, but the picture that she painted reiterated to us that these are these are not conversations we need to have about something that happened back in 1889 with some bishop who deserves to have his name stripped from a high school. This is this is stuff that Canadians and that people living here in unceded territories as well need to need to wrestle with and grapple with. Um, I want to give all, all three of you a, a, an opportunity to comment on that. I don't want to s- simply put this on jay who's showing great courage in, in talking about this but shane i can't ignore it you're it, it seems to me like this is resonating with you as you've described as a white man uh living in canada where's your head at on this yeah yeah thank you so much uh jay for sharing um your perspective and your 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 pain with us i think you know as a white man and as someone who exists in the settler society i it it, it just, it frustrates me even that, you know, it's just such a horrible example of, you know, like when people tell you, you should listen. Uh, and I think, you know, when I hear people, my peers, my, my, you know, fellow white Canadians who, who are like, I can't believe this happened in Canadian society. It's like, what do you mean? Like people have been telling you this and communities have been, been talking about this and elders have been sharing and the truth and reconciliation commission surfaced this. Like this isn't like, I mean, the, the actual finding of, of those, those poor children is an atrocity and is very traumatic. But we know that those, uh, those children have been murdered across this country through the residential school system and are continuing to, to be harmed at the hand of the state. Um, so I think for myself, it's, uh, it's been a real wake-up call to, you know, I think we all need to be, ha- like I say we, as in like the, the royal we and white Canadians need to be having conversations with each other about, like, this shouldn't be a surprise to everyone. We, sh- we should be able to have these hard conversations about our history that is so intertwined in genocide and trauma. Um, and, you know, that, that doesn't negate that we're here today. You know, we're, we're able to exist in today's society, but we still have to be able to have that difficult conversation. And, um, you know, Jay, your point about palatability, I think people would rather put it in that historical box, put it on a shelf and then never have to talk about it again. You know, they want it to be a chapter in a textbook that they've closed. That's history. It's done. And I think the hard, difficult conversation is, is you know, we are going to continue finding reminders that it happened in the past, but we we have to also realize and talk about that it's happening today. Ophelia, may I, may I ask how, I mean, with regards to these perspectives that we're hearing here, how, do, how does it apply to you based on maybe what, what where your awareness has been at over the past while? I think, um, you know, I, I'm struck in, in, in listening to all this. Uh, the timeline issue is, is one that 
has really resonated because there are ways that we that we code uh, indigenous uh, indigenous stories and indigenous history, indigenous culture uh, within education systems and within everything that I've experienced. You know, I, can, I think I can genuinely say that I went through nine or ten years of schooling at a minimum without hearing about any, without grappling with any topics in indigeneity anywhere outside of a history class. And when you're relegating everything, and, you know, when you have a class that sounds something like approximately ancient Egypt, ancient Greece, uh, the Mi'kmaq people, uh, and then you don't talk about indigeneity anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, you can really get a sense that these things are kind of in the past. That these are issues that we have previously grappled with, and that indigeneity is in a kind of a non is in a space that you know maybe that's a question that's left unanswered. Um, coming from Newfoundland to now, you know, now living in Newfoundland as I have for 15, about 15 years, uh, you know, there was a, a, a near official line of promotion from the government here for, uh, during the Smallwood era uh, that Newfoundland, that the island of Newfoundland had no indigenous people on it, which I'm sure was a shock to the people of Con River, as as, as well as as well as as well as many many others, of course. Uh, even the the division of Newfoundland from Labrador in in, in common vernacular uh, with the associated uh, you know indigeneity in Labrador, uh, I think is is really telling. Uh, but this has all been, you know, these are these are not revelations, as 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 Jay pointed out, and Jay again, I really do thank you for what you said, uh, and for and for taking the time, and, and th just seriously, thank you so much. Uh, this is, you know, none of this is a shock to people who who had the slightest knowledge, of unfortunately, what happened within this system. Um, but when you when you're in a culture that actively represses discussion as much as possible and frames everything as historical discourse, uh, it can be quite painful. Just this morning on Twitter, I uh, retweeted a, a post from Amy Norman, uh, who's a remarkable, uh, remarkable uh, individual. She ran in Labrador in the district of Lake Melville uh, in the most recent provincial election here in Newfoundland. Incredible candidate uh, with our provincial Democratic Party. And, and Amy pointed out that uh, I think the most recent the most recent closure of a residential school in Canada was around the time that Ross and Rachel went on a break. <laughs> if you want if you want to think about it in those terms. This is within living memory for, for many, many, many of us. And it's about time that we started discussing it in that way. Yeah. Um uh, we asked uh, uh, please. Um <clears throat> but like uh the last federally closed residential school was yes. in nineteen ninety six. But yes there were private residential schools and they weren't closed for years, for years and years and years. And those private residential schools were kept from the TRC, kept from the 60 scoop things. There are a lot of folks in our community who were in residential school, but because they weren't federally funded, they were kept from class action lawsuits. They were kept from justice. And so <clears throat> there are a lot more than the 138 residential schools across the state. And I think moving forward, something that folks can do who feel something, instead of just feeling something and saying that they feel something, they can write a letter to their city council. They can write a letter to their MP and their MLA to pressure the funding to find these kids because that was one of the things that was asked for, $150 million to find these children and to bring them home. And Justin Trudeau said no. And we have the resources to find these children because there are thousands more. And I think it is our responsibility, especially uh, folks who, who want to do more than just feel something, to do that work. 
And it's it's hard for my community to advocate for this because we're asking for our own dead to be unburied, to come home to us. And that's very hard, but we deserve our own rituals and our own protocols to mourn this loss. Kaylin on our live chat, she's she's watching from Vancouver. She says this is just such a, a fantastic panel and such a reminder that as, as cis or white queer uh, people, we need to actively lift up our uh, queer and trans BIPOC community, black indigenous people of color, our community members by using our privilege. She says, I'm so grateful for this for this conversation. Thank you. Um, we've also got I mean, I mean, great comments here. Stephanie says it's so important to hear indigenous voices uh, loudly every day until everybody gets it until people feel it in the pits of their stomach nick says i've not been in so many bouts of spontaneous tears as this past week as canada wakes up to this and as we talk about it uh, nick says i refuse to avoid this pain or to turn away anymore and i'm grateful to our panelists for their honesty uh, which is just an amazing comment to read and, and this one from Wigwith, who says, you know, Canada condemns many other countries for, for current or past atrocities, but you know, we fail to grapple with our own atrocities as a nation, um, including how we have approached both indigenous and LGBTQ2S plus rights. Uh, that from Wigwith, which is certainly a fair and pointed comment. We asked the three of you for an hour of your time, and, and boy, did you uh, bring incredible perspectives today. I want to give each of you an opportunity to give us a, to issue a call to action in i suppose in addition to the ones you've already given us uh in in particular um shane in particular i want i want to tee you up to tell us a little bit about the shane scott pride fund i know that you've just established this in partnership with the edmonton community foundation you're hoping to raise ten thousand dollars this month which will be endowed and and will support uh students who are pursuing post-secondary students who demonstrate financial need who are active in their community what prompted this and why is it so important to you yeah, yeah, I'll try and be really brief with my my kind of pitch. Um, I think, it, you know, a, a lot of what we talked about in this conversation is being able to, to do something uh, when it comes to pride, uh, when it comes to reconciliation, you know, it's complacency and comfortability isn't isn't going to do anything. And so I think that the call to action uh, to make Canada a better place is to do something and, and is to donate to different causes, you know, talk to your peers, write your MPs, your city councillors. I think those are all very important things. Um, part of what I was, uh, I'm trying to do with the Shane Scott Pride Fund is, you know, use I, I've had my own barriers that I've had to overcome, and, and that's why you know the fund itself is centered around my experience. But my experience is one of many, and, and I've had it fairly easy compared to a lot of other people in the community. And so now, now that I'm in the place I am with my career and in life, I'm trying to use that place of privilege to to raise money to provide for kind of the, the, the next generation of queer youth that are coming who who really do need the support, um, much like I did, and I'm sure many of us did at, at the time. So. Um, yeah, if anyone uh, is looking to donate as part of Pride, I encourage them to take a look at the Shane Scott Pride Fund. Uh, I, every once in a while, I'll, I'll, I'll put this out hosting talk shows. You never know who's watching. You never know who's listening. I'd love to see somebody that's feeling moved uh, by this panel. That this panel's resonating. So I'd like to see I'd love to see somebody donate ten thousand dollars right now. You can Google Shane Scott Pride Fund. Uh, you can find it at ecfoundation.org. That's the Edmonton Community Foundation. Ophelia, will you, will you give us an assignment? For Pride Month, what is it? Uh, I'll I'll say a few things if I could. Uh, if you're a person in the community, if you're if you're a 2 LGBTQ plus community member who at any point is uh, debated running for office, 
do it soon uh, across this province with municipal elections coming up. We're possibly looking at something federal in the next who knows uh this is a time to look into it if you're if you consider yourself a community ally uh please consider uplifting trans artists and trans performers and trans musicians and trans creators and trans everything uh within your community uh the financial the fact that you know COVID has hit uh, their industry incredibly hard and marginalization unfortunately remains a thing uh that is going to create some imbalances there so do everything you can to ensure that uh, trans creators uh and the trans individuals around you are able to have a, a strong livelihood that they're able to create beautiful things and that uh, and that you support them in every way you can and that that support uh, isn't just words that it's that frankly that it's financial um and in a broad sense to everybody uh we've, we've touched briefly on sex workers i've been very active in the fight for sex worker rights uh, in st john's and elsewhere uh for the, for the last number of years uh find out uh, if you have local sex worker rights uh, advocacy organizations here in st john's with shop the safe Harbor outreach project uh, in toronto there's maggie's there are, there are others elsewhere uh if you're acquainted with an organization like that if not get acquainted with them find out how the sex workers in your town are doing uh learn to accept the them and respect them as members of your community because that's exactly who they are and they do deserve your respect and if you have the ability to do so donate your time and your money to organizations that are working to uh, to champion their rights their safety and uh, their ability to moderate their own livelihood so well said uh jay will give you last word thank you so i've got two things that folks can do um first and foremost the indian residential school survivor society is uh, getting three to 4,000 calls a day from survivors and families affected intergenerationally by residential schools. Uh, you can donate directly to them to help uh, alleviate um, a lot of this uh, incoming uh, services that they are now providing. And also uh, the Kamloops Aboriginal Friendship Center Society is uh their building is really dilapidated and they're seeking funds to create a new building to provide for that community. Um, right now they have only fundraised $75,000, um, but they have a $500,000 goal. Um, and that building, the, the Kamloops Aboriginal Friendship Center has provided so much care and so much resources for that community that there are very palatable things that, um, not very palatable, there are very plausible things that we can do to help provide and alleviate uh, a lot of the uh, barriers and stressors that are in community right now. And that's something we can do. I have no doubt that we can get to $500,000 very quickly. We can talk to each other. We can send it to each other. And all of us collectively can raise these funds uh, very quickly. Um three incredible human beings i feel like i've made three friends today i'm absolutely grateful for the perspectives that you've brought for the the commitments you've made to your communities and and quite frankly for the enlightenment that you've provided today um our audience is speaking loud and clear on our live chat right now about how much they appreciate this um and i share that sentiment uh shane scott ophelia ravencroft and jay simpson from from the bottom of our collective heart thank you for this thank you thank you for having us you go unbelievable conversation and thank you to those of you on the on 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 the chat that are are are, are sort of processing what you're hearing in real time i have no doubt that this uh, podcast is going to resonate in a big way and i'm expecting a lot of emails to talk at ryanjesperson.com i can tell you the producer of this show behind the scenes sarah hoyles is already working hard and i can tell what you're can i can i forecast a guess that that right now you like everybody else is going private residential schools private residential schools that is, I wrote it down on a piece of paper. I thought I saw you write it yeah. down on a piece of paper. Uh, yeah. We got to dig into that. Yeah. So that's that, the first I've heard of that. And that's just like, wow. Okay. I'm listening. And how did I not know about that? Yeah. 
now I need to do, I need to look into it and I, I need to, yeah, access resources. Yeah. You know, Terry says, maybe not 10 grand, but I'll be happy to donate to the, uh, to the Indian Residential School Survivor Society. Terry, every single dollar counts, every single dollar uh, what a remarkable conversation that was. I wasn't sure quite what to expect. I didn't know where we'd go. Like, was it going to be sort of more? I, I didn't I, I didn't. I wasn't expecting maybe like just a super positive, happy pride, like, you know, blowing the Vuvuzelas and the, you know, the streamers coming down from the ceiling and a lot of the things that people associate with pride. But it was so the tone that it took in the first five minutes uh, with Jay and talking about pride as protest and the roots of pride and people talk about Stonewall or Pisces or like all these stories. Right. And all the history uh, it was formed out of pro. Like, I'm not going to sit here and try to teach people about it, but my observations and the learning that I've been doing, it's been reiterated that it was it, it was a it was a movement uh, formed from protest and and the absolute need for the demand for protest for for equity for equality for equal representation. Even Ophelia at the end, signing off, talking about talking about, I mean, I mean, you know, we've talked about sex workers and, and sex work even on the show before. And it's 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 really interesting that the different angles there. That's a conversation that you don't typically have, you know, tonight on the news at six. Like that's not those aren't the stories you get right or talking about trans workers in the arts. I mean, these are we don't get these types of conversations without having roundtables like this. And uh, I saw a beautiful comment. I don't remember who it was, but someone just said, I, I so appreciated this. Um, you know, I so appreciated the roundtable because they, they talked about it was a metaphor about the rainbow or the pride colors saying we don't necessarily see all of the different perspectives represented in our immediate circles, mm. you know, in, in the sense of why these conversations are so important. I, I promised I'm going to get to some of your emails in just a minute. This is not not trash talk. That's still coming. But some really thoughtful emails um including one from alex who i'll get to in just a moment a catholic's thought on residential schools of course you know these conversations happen each and every day because we've got a, a roster of real talk builders that meet us where we're at they support these types of conversations and, and the need for us to dig into the issues that truly matter right out of the gates when we started this show the team at eden landscaping was in they believe in the art of conversation. They believe in the importance of community in landscaping. I mean, this is the time of year where they're taking people's visions, people's dreams, and they're turning them into reality in the outdoor spaces. I was checking out Landscape Edmonton the other day, trying to trying to landscapeedmonton.ca, trying to pick out like what's my favorite project that they did. Taking a look at some of the photos of their work, and you can do the exact same thing. Uh, there's no project too big or too small for the team at Eden, bringing your outdoor space to life at landscapeedmonton.ca. The team at Alta Moving and Storage is gearing up for a busy summer. You take a look at the real estate market, what it's doing right now across the country. They know that a lot of people are planning and preparing for that big move, but of course, dreading moving day. Let's be honest, moving day sucks. It's stressful. It can be emotional. You're always in a rush. It's not fitting your schedule. Where are the five minutes you need to say goodbye to the house where, you know, you built so many memories? They understand it. They're family-owned business themselves. They're pod-style moving containers. They drop them off. You load them up at your pace. They'll drop them off. Same deal when you unload. Your pace, your plan, stress-free at Alta Moving and Storage. Check out altastorage.ca. And make sure when you book your pod-style moving container, you let them know that you heard about them on Real Talk. Also, a big shout-out to the team at Athabasca University Power Ed. If you check out Power Ed. 
www.ca.ca online. You can learn more about these on-demand courses. These are courses for personal or professional betterment, including a course on allyship and inclusion. How perfect for the month of June. A lot of these courses, these upgrading opportunities, take literally a couple of hours to complete. It's something you could do today if you wanted to do something to deepen your understanding of issues that matter. Again, at powered.ca. And do I need to still remind you that the teams at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park have extended their Real Talk Peanut Buster Parfait deal? These are the Dairy Queens at Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens, and Baseline Road. Somebody sent me an email yesterday. They drove up from Red Deer to pick up Peanut Buster Parfaits at our Dairy Queens, they put it. At the Real Talk Dairy Queens. We joked back and forth. I sent them an email back. I said, I said, you know you can get ice cream in Red Deer. They said, we we don't care. We wanted to support the ones that support our show. I thought that's amazing. And Mark and Michelle and Michael are going to love to hear that when they learn of that. $1.99 for a peanut buster parfait for a limited time till the end of this weekend. In fact, make sure you just mention Real Talk or drop my name, Jespo, and you'll get that special, special deal. Well, our email inbox has, has, has been... Um, uh, we have received uh, just an incredible amount of, of feedback uh, from audience members who are wrestling with uncomfortable realities. And the, the words that you have shared with us have moved us deeply. And we don't have time to read all of them. But over the course of the next number of weeks, we will continue to present the perspectives of real talkers like Alex, who wrote in a Catholic's thoughts on residential schools. We got this on Wednesday. Alex says, with the help of the conversations on Real Talk, I've been reflecting a lot on the horrific discovery of, of, of indigenous children's remains at this former residential school in Kamloops. As both a Canadian and a member of the Catholic community, I've been reflecting in particular on the Catholic Church's role as the operator of this and many other residential schools. And I wanted to share my thoughts. I'm angry about the continuing lack of a meaningful apology and accountability from our church leadership. I've been angry for years about the failure of both Canadian bishops and the Vatican to meaningfully apologize for the church's role in this genocide. The previous pope did acknowledge the church's role and expressed regret for it in 2009, which is a start. But since then, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has called on the pope to apologize. The current pope declined to do so in 2018 when asked by the prime minister. This week's statement by the president of the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops only made things worse for two reasons. One, the lack of an apology and the reference to the trauma of residential schools as the pain and suffering of the past. This is a cop out, says Alex, because the pain and suffering is ongoing and will remain. I do give some credit to the Archbishop of Vancouver for a separate statement acknowledging the passage of time does not erase the suffering. But again, no apology. All the other religious organizations that operated residential schools have apologized for their roles. It infuriates and embarrasses me that the Catholic Church remains the only holdout. The church even has a precedent for similar apologies that it itself is not following. In many cases before his death in 2005, Pope John Paul II apologized for the church's involvement in various atrocities, including the stolen generations. That is the Australian government's forcible removal of indigenous children from their families. That apology was issued in 1999 following the Australian national inquiry into the stolen generations. Sound familiar? 
it's incredibly disappointing that the same has not happened for all Canadian residential schools. So where does that leave me, asks Alex, as a Catholic layperson with no leadership role in the church? I'll admit at times I've wondered how I can even continue being a Catholic. Ultimately, though, my faith is is more than a membership in an organization. It's a fundamental part of my personal identity, and I cannot simply discard it. However, I'm thinking more seriously about what I can do to pressure church leadership to take accountability. Over the last few days, I've been pleased to see many self-identified Catholics responding to bishops' statements on social media, pushing back against them as insufficient. For what it's worth, I myself have done this, and I will continue to do so at every opportunity. Also, for what it's worth, I am so sorry to indigenous people for my church's role in residential schools and the ongoing suffering it continues to cause. According to Catholic theology, repentance is a prerequisite of forgiveness. Bishops who claim to be the guardians of Catholic theological tradition would do well to think about that and set an example. Otherwise, I don't see how they have any moral authority to even talk about this. Alex says, thank you for this real talk opportunity. I catch every episode. Thanks, Alex. And how about this one from AJ? The kids will want the earmuffs for this one. AJ says, you know, Ryan, yesterday you show the, the photo, a so-called surveillance photo of the premier and the health minister and other senior cabinet ministers up on the Sky Palace patio having a work dinner i was one of those patio gate folks that got sucked into the distraction of these dumb asses but extremely predictable moves with that patio photo instead of getting more angry as you talked about yesterday about the premier's denialism when it comes to residential schools and his obsession with sir john a mcdonald when you had Dr. Jody Carrington on psychologist yesterday, the, the, you know, her, her word really hit me like a Mack truck when she said as white people, quote, we listen and we don't speak because we're scared to get it all wrong. AJ says, fuck me. I've been scared to get it wrong when there's absolutely no truth that I've done my own research, including taking courses at the U of A and, and reading up on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action and listening to residential school survivors tell their stories. And still, somehow, I believe I am not educated enough to begin talking, let alone advocating. The reality is I won't be educated enough and I will never understand enough. I'm a white settler on these lands. I, I am gay. And to a small degree, I can empathize with people who experience trauma, but I cannot even begin to comprehend the trauma that exists with survivors of residential schools. And Dr. Carrington's message to me was who the fuck cares? Start listening and start speaking up. I was frustrated with that patio photo, but I but but I felt like that was something I could comment on. I did not feel like I could comment on something so enormous as residential schools or mass graves exposing historical and systemic genocide in this country. And I was wrong. Thank you for bringing on guests who challenge our assumptions and who hold us accountable by telling us, hey, shit's going to stink. Are you surprised? That from A.J., 
And there's one here from Aaron, and, and I want to read Aaron's email. Apologies to Aaron in advance. It's a wonderful message. It's quite lengthy, and I'm going to do my best to pick the most important parts. Aaron says, you know, this morning I was watching the news. My six-year-old son was joining me, and he asked about video that he saw of drummers and singers and people gathered outside Calgary's City Hall wearing orange T-shirts. We talked in age-appropriate language about colonization and residential schools and a mass grave discovered in Kamloops. He listened. He's six. He asked questions, and and he was visibly sad, and on his own, he went to his room, and he found an orange T-shirt, and he put it on. And his dad and I have spent the last few days talking about this, discussing our privilege and why it's important that our children have a different understanding about injustices forced upon indigenous people over the past 200 years. It is not enough for us to share our sympathies through words dripping in privilege without action. In 2015, our nation made a commitment to truth and reconciliation with calls to action that would redress the legacy of residential schools that would advance the process of reconciliation. The Alberta government's commitment at that time was to ensure that residential schools are taught in each grade of the curriculum. Why is this not being honored in the draft curriculum we've seen? Where are the voices of the families, the mothers, the fathers, the aunts, uncles, the grandparents of children who were forcibly removed from their homes. I want my son to learn about this. I want him to understand so that we can begin to heal the wounds. Adding insult to injury the same weekend that Canadians learned about the devastation in Kamloops, the same weekend that indigenous people across our country are rehashing the feelings and the experience of trauma and grief The Dorchester Review, we've talked about this on the show, under the authority of Chris Champion, hired by this Alberta government to write the social studies curriculum, tweeted, quote, as I'm sure you know about residential schools, in many cases, their parents wanted them there. That's why this should be based on research, not the politics and the cashola of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. His following tweets also made an attempt to justify the deaths as a result of tuberculosis or some other disease. This is not even thinly veiled racism. This is a racist in academic clothing trying to justify and uphold systems of oppression by creating a narrative that denies the truth of systemic abuse, neglect, trauma and murder that occurred at the hands of the Canadian government and the Catholic Church. I, alongside thousands of others, demand that Chris Champion be removed from the Alberta Curriculum Advisory Panel immediately. I demand a formal apology from the Alberta government to First Nations people engagement with an action plan that will uphold calls to action and redevelop a new draft curriculum. The draft curriculum is no longer just an embarrassment. It is harmful. I demand action be taken in the best interests of this province. That from Erin, who signs off from her riding of Calgary Curry. We appreciate everybody who tunes in and takes the time to send us these incredibly powerful emails. You help shape and form the perspectives of this show, our understanding of the conversations that we need to facilitate. 
We're going to get to trash talk in just a moment. You know that's coming up. It's how we wrap up our broadcast week. We don't ignore that it's going to be a busy weekend for a lot of people getting outside. That may include getting that grill going, the barbecue. And it's, a, of course, my pleasure to remind you that the team at Friesen Brothers is more than excited to have just opened their 16th Alberta location. Congratulations to the fabulous town of Sundry, the home of Friesen Brothers 16th store. You know, there's 15% off purchases every day, the first day of the month at Friesen Brothers, 15% off the first day of the month. And they want to also remind you to keep an eye out if you're living in Edmonton, Fort Saskatchewan, or Stony Plain. Those three stores are going to be rolling out their Father's Day barbecue gift boxes those are coming soon. Plus, Mike's Meals for June. Hardworking home cooking, including, Sam, can I throw you? Can we get to that Instagram photo? You know the one I'm talking about, the steak? Look at this. Okay, okay, ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening on the podcast, let me do my best to describe. But this was one where I was tagged on. And and, and uh, Equisports Therapy uh, let us know that Friesen Brothers steaks, because Jesperson influenced me, she heard all the talk about grilled zucchini. And look at it there. That's what's getting me. That zucchini, zucchini looks zucchini, so right? good. It looks like she has perfectly brushed it. I go with like like a certain like an olive oil or whichever oil you put. Just some nice cracked sea salt, some cracked pepper. Oh baby! So Equisports Therapy has it going on. Make sure you let Friesen Brothers know when you're heading in there and hitting the grill because of something you heard on Real Talk. You make sure you remind them of that. The team at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. I saw that the team at St. Albert Dodge on their Instagram yesterday had the Dodge Demons out. These are the eight hundred. 140 horsepower Dodge. Are you kidding me? But they've also got the Jeep lineup, including that 4xE Wrangler, the fully electric Wrangler. Well, as a matter of fact, you can make a choice to take it fully electric with the dash style. It's one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my life. You're not going to find a better selection of the entire Jeep lineup than you will at the shared inventories of Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. You can check them out online or in person. And of course, under the sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com. We've already got a whole bunch of submissions for positive reflections. That's coming up on Monday and we want to see more. Have no doubt over the weekend that you're going to be sending us emails to talk at RyanJesperson.com. The things that made you laugh the things that made you smile, uh, maybe those human moments that you want to share with your fellow real talkers. Kubi Energy proudly presents it, the first show of every week. And of course, you know they're in the solar install game. Jake was telling me about this the other day, and I, and I wanted to point it out to you. It's a great opportunity when you take a look at what the, the opportunities that the federal government is making available for solar upgrades in your own home. Look no further than this. This is at NR. Can okay nrcan.gc.ca. You can see it there on our screen, or even easier, just Google the Canada Greener Homes Grant. Jake was joking around with me. He said, "I'm nervous to share this with real talkers because I suspect we're about to get slammed." Probably is the case. You can look into that. How you can take down, knock down the price tag of going sustainable with your own energy demands, and of course, look to KubiEnergy.ca for the install. They're Tesla certified with electricians and electrical apprentices only doing the work. The team at Local Waste loves to talk trash. Coming up on Monday, we're actually going to get into a news item that they've put on our radar. There's something shady going on in the waste management industry. That story's coming up on Monday. Right now, we'll remind you that Local Waste clears up space within their own resources to get you out of bad garbage contracts. So if you're a small business owner that's just getting absolutely taken advantage of by your current partner, look to localwaste.ca. They'll tell you how you can get out of that bad contract and paint a picture of what 
partnership looks like with them, the team at Local Waste. Of course, each and every Friday, our friends at Local Waste also give us an opportunity to, you know, blow off a little steam, get something off our chest. It's a little something we like to call trash talk. All right, this one from Erin, who writes in on cancel culture. She says, I'm dedicating this to all the old, rich, white dudes, in body or in mind, that just can't keep up with the rest of us trying to make society a kinder, more just place. I imagine the outrage you feel at having the freedom and privilege to act and say as you please for years or decades, regardless of how offensive and hurtful it is, to wake up into 2021 to find out that there are suddenly consequences to being shitty. How dare we suggest people be called out for treating others as subhuman right i know it just doesn't feel fair that you might be publicly humiliated or even lose your job for the hurtful things you say and do losing privilege sucks doesn't it well deal with it my friends that word you like to use what is it again snowflake how do those taste right now challenge change is hard i know but you can do this it's not called cancel culture it's called trying to do better and if that makes you uncomfortable i think we're headed in the right direction direction that from Aaron what about this one from Heidi who says I don't normally write letters when I'm angry I usually rant privately in my own home and smile sweetly when I leave but this government's broken me the past two years have changed that about me I've never been so disheartened and truly angry at the complete disregard this government has for Albertans believe me I don't have to convince too many people about the ways this disrespectful group of elected buffoons is embarrassing us. The Sky Palace incident is just another shining example of elitism. The lack of sense any of these people have. People are fleeing en masse. We are watching a brain drain. Enjoy the stampede and the rodeos and your Hawaiian vacations and your private church services and of course your palace in the sky. Enjoy it because your time in office is coming to an end. That from Heidi. What about this one from Rob who says, I just wanted to say for trash talk that the premier Jason Kenney making himself extremely unpopular. But here's the thing. He's threatening the health of the entire party. Rob says, professionally, I've done curriculum design. I've been consulting contracts for multiple school boards across Alberta. I didn't even realize that residential school denial is a big problem in the new curriculum until I listened to Real Talk on Thursday. I'm practically cheering for the new curriculum now because it's the proverbial wood being added to the fire burning underneath Jason Kenney's cabinet. And that's the best news I've heard in months. The bigger the fire, the better. Let's send them packing. That from Rob. What about this one from Peter? Peter who says, let me tell you something. Us constituents, we deserve to know where our elected representatives stand. Have you noticed like this week's trash talk is just nothing but provincial politics? Are you kidding me? He says, my 18-month-old daughter's only hugged her grandparents a handful of times. She's far too young to remember by now, but she's been suffering a life of isolation. Meantime, these politicians sit inches apart and drink shitty whiskey. He says, figure out where you stand and let us know. You may think voters forget easily, but we don't let things go easily. Signed, a pissed off Peter. What about this one from Irene? Irene kept it short and sweet. 
She said Sky Palace Supper, response to residential school discovery, zero compassion, zero empathy, no humanity. Fuck the patriarchy, Ryan. Fuck the patriarchy. That from Irene. And we'll close with this from Jessine, who says, all I have to say is fucking keep it up, boys. Every day you're given even staunch conservatives reason to not vote for you in 2023. Bye-bye. Signed, Jacine, a former PC donor and supporter, but never the UCP. You can send your trash talks to us every day of the week to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Next Friday, we'll do it all over again. Have yourselves a blessed and safe weekend. Walk strong, listen, think, and then be in touch. We'll talk to you Monday morning live at 8.30 Mountain Time.